back to episode 6 of Pigskins of Nylon. I'm Wally Lukashensky and I'm joined once again by my great friends and co-hosts Casey Mock and Hayden Ramsey. So let's say hello to the boys. You may notice something different today. Casey and I are actually recording together in Columbus. I was in town, had to do some stuff for my former school, so I had to take care of that. So we're going to actually start with Hayden today, who is up in Northwest Ohio alone. But Hayden, baseball season's finally over for you, man. How are you doing? Yeah, baseball is finally over. This was a long season, but we made it through. Really looking forward to this episode. I think we I think we got a pretty good one. Wally pulled a few strings here, so got a nice little episode going on. We absolutely do. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Got Drew Meyer coming on later in the show for you guys. But first of all, let's say hello to our other co-host, Casey Mock. First of all, man, thanks for having me today. I'm in your house as you're getting ready to leave to your actual house. So how are things going in your life here, Mr. Mock? Yeah, it's uh, going great. I wish I had my desk. I'm sorry that we're having to <laughs> throw this together like this, but glad to have you here, dude. The floors in the house are, are finished today. We got the trim up and ready to get going. So, moving in this weekend, but other than that, last day of school tomorrow. Really excited for that. Yeah, I saw too. You had your, your diploma out this last weekend showing us. Oh, yeah. Yep. Got the diploma, so it's official. Pretty excited about that. Got to get it framed. Buckeye so for life, baby. Buckeye for life is I know. right. Now I'm tied to, tied to you guys forever, really. Yeah, doing great. How are you, man? We're doing pretty good. Aiden, you were already talking about it. We have Drew Meyer coming on a little later today. I'm really looking forward to talking with that. It's ironic because we're actually recording this on Wednesday night. So we're actually going to be doing our interview with Drew tomorrow night on Thursday. So at this point, we're just going to tell you it was a great interview. It felt like it was great. We haven't done it yet. but Yeah, it was amazing. Great dude. Can't <laughs> wait to have him back. Going to be a perennial guest. He already said so, we're assuming, on the the recording. But otherwise, I'm doing good, man. The Penguins suck. So I'm hopefully, because I'm here and I'm driving back tonight, I'm going to miss them get eliminated from the playoffs, which means it never counted. So as long as they lose when I'm not watching tonight, there's no problem. They weren't eliminated. Asterisks on the entire season. But otherwise, what do you guys say? We talk a little bit of Big Ten basketball, Big Ten football here before the interview. Yep. Hayden, I got one thing to say to you, though. Bro, your, your Braves need to chill. They're creeping up on my Mets, dude. Yeah. Fortunately for the Mets, uh, Marcel Azunia is out for six weeks, so he's going on the DL. So the story of the season is injury after injury. So there we go. We get oh my going. god! I can't tell if the NL East is just the best division in baseball, or if they all just really suck. Well, you know what? They the Braves, his Braves, beat the Pirates twenty to one last week. But mind you, Pirates did score the final run in that game. So people don't talk enough so about. So technically, that. they who really won the game? Right. Yeah. It's a tw- it's a nine inning game. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. The the last. The last three games, so they played a four-game series. The last three games, I think it was 33-2 to two or something. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Hey, well, Hayden, I can't remember. What happened in that first game? That's what I thought. The better team won. Yeah, and shockingly, I was talking shit. I, I think I texted you and said, Braves are going to sweep the pie. I didn't realize it was a four-game set. If I knew it was four games, I wouldn't have said they were going to sweep. If it was three games, the, the first game of a four-game set never counts, so... 
<laughs> but <laughs> I was talking shit, and then all of a sudden they lose the first game. I'm kind of sitting there like, oh, God, here we go. Well, the Pirates have been literally so bad. It's not even worth talking about it in the last month of the, or so of the season. It's finally that whole talent will eventually show itself over the course of 162 games. Oh, yeah. But we're not going to waste our time talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates <laughs> on this. No one, no one wants to hear that, even if you're from Pittsburgh. So we're going to jump into our newly named since last week segment. And this week we decided that we're going to do our top five head coaches football-wise, not all across the board football-wise, in the Big Ten. And to make it easy on me, because I keep forgetting how, since Casey and I are recording together today, I keep forgetting about the muting ourselves thing that we usually don't have to do. So to avoid the confusion in my brain, we're going to go to Casey first so I can keep it going. I'll mute myself. We'll hear Hayden's thoughts. And then we'll come back for me before we go over, throw into a couple topics before ultimately we get to the Drew Meyer interview. Real quick, too. It's going to be a relatively short show by our standards. Not a lot going on out there. So that's kind of why we wanted to book an interview. Hopefully we have more coming. Just keep that in mind going forward in this episode. You're not going to get us droning on like we probably usually do or would like to do. But anyways, Casey, let's hear your top five head football coaches in the Big Ten. Oh, wow. I was uh, really excited about this this list here. So there are a lot of things I took into consideration to start, and I'll kind of explain that when I when I go through my top five. So to start it off here, I got James Franklin at number five. After a slow start to his Penn State career, I mean, he's really been doing well the past three out of the four years. I think they won 11 games outside of the, the COVID year last year. But I also feel like he's had some really talented team. Like we said a couple episodes ago, that 2017 Penn State team was one of the best teams in the country that year. And they didn't even win the Big Ten title that year. So I think he's underachieved with his top talent. But overall, I think he's done really good. At number four, I, I call him Mr. Mr. Consistent. And that's Kirk Ferentz. I was finished last year as one of the hottest teams in the country. And since 2015, they've not won less than eight games other than the COVID year last year. And like we said, Iowa was one of the hottest teams in the country to end last year. I think they won six straight to end the season. So I've had Ferentz at number four just because typically you can get seven to eight wins. And the dude's held his job for, what, 22 years now? A million years. Yeah, so uh, I think longevity, which you'll see in my top three, is something that I value. A nice segue right into my number three is Ryan Day. I think the jury is still out on him just a little bit. With really only coaching 20... That's unbelievable to me. With with only coaching 22 games as the head guy outside of his three when Urban was the head guy. I, you know... Like we said before, too, 2019 Ohio State was so talented. He was handed God's gift to earth, basically, with that team. And and he couldn't get it done. That kind of weighs in my decision here. And then getting into the playoff last year, finally getting over the hump was nice, but then getting smacked by Bama. As, in my opinion... I'm I'm dumbfounded right now. This is unbelievable. He's doing what... I think anybody else could have if they would have gotten that job. Ohio State would have went 13-0 in 2019 with that talent, and they would have rolled the Big Ten. Last year, you know, their shortened schedule, I feel like they didn't play anybody that was really worth 
a lick, you know, Indiana, I, I guess. But, you know, I'll give him credit for the Northwest, or the Northwestern win. Actually, you know what? I discredit him for that. That was the one game I watched in Ohio State the past three years that I was like, what are these coaches doing? I remember that specifically on offense. They didn't look good until Trey Sermon started running wild. But anyway, so I, I think the jury is still out. I think if they run the table this year, the Big Ten, make it to the playoff, he could easily be my number one. But like I said, you know, the longevity is why I have Pat Fitzgerald at number two. Outside of the 3-9 and nine 2019 season, I really, you know, had that not happened, I really thought about putting him at number one just because of the difficulties that Northwestern has to do to get good players there. Obviously, one of the highest academic schools in the Big Ten. We're going to be very close on Pat Fitzgerald. Yeah, uh, and, you know, he overachieves for his talent, and I think that means a lot in terms of actual coaching to me. And that's why, going into my number one, Paul Christ, they don't ever recruit at the level of an Ohio State or Michigan or Penn State even, and yet they're consistently winning. What what do I have down here? I think so. He he's won at least ten games in four out of the five years until the COVID year last year. While he does only have three or four years of experience more than Ryan Day at Wisconsin, he did coach at Pitt for three years, I think. But the most impressive thing with him is that he's five and one in his bowl games, and they've won some pretty big bowl games. So, you know, I think that's why I have Fitzgerald and Chris ahead of Ryan Day right now. I put a little note here that guys like P.J. Fleck, Shiano, and Day can really make a statement this year, I think, if if Fleck can repeat the success that Minnesota had two seasons ago. I think, one, he's probably going to leave for a bigger, better job. And then he'll move into probably my top five. Same with Shiano. We've seen what Shiano's doing on the recruiting trail. Now, if you can translate that to the field. You Replacing know, who? What's that? Uh, just just a question. If if they do, like Shiano and Fleck, like have a really good year this year, who would you slide them in front of on your list? Would it be the longevity guys or would it be like the James Franklin? I think it would probably be Ference, And then depending on what Penn State does, it could be James Franklin too. I really thought about not even having Ryan Day in my top five just because he is so new. And he's like... Holy shit! He's he's just not proven anything to me yet. Like I said, you could have hated anybody that team and and done what... I don't know. I've been... Had this list been last year, before last year, I thought more highly of Ryan Day after the 2019 than I do after the 2020. The Indiana game wasn't that impressive play calling wise. And and then Northwestern and, and Alabama just stick out in my head. And that was that was coaching to me. I think Ohio State was better than a twelve point or what was it, twenty two ten? Yeah. It was an ugly score like yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was ugly as hell and you know, I think I think that comes down to coaching for the most part. And then the Alabama game was just ridiculously embarrassing. They you know, coaching lost them that game, lost that game by 28. And you got tough Orland running down the middle of the field with Devontae Smith. I know that's not really on Ryan Day as much, but Ryan Day can be number one very easily 
after this year. I just think that he's got to show me a little bit more. I'm like kind of confused because you just said that you've thought about not even having him on your top five, but then he could be number one if they, if they what, go 10 and two or if they go 12 and 0 or like, I just don't understand. Like what's the, what's the record they have to go next year to make him higher on your list? Yeah. So it's different for each coach. I think that for Ohio state, I think if they lose any game outside of the Oregon game, he's going to stay at number three. Because Ohio State is by far the most talented team in the Big Ten, and if you can't get it done, I think that ultimately kind of falls on your players, your head coach. Well, and I guess my question for you then would just be, then if they do let even go undefeated in the regular season, even if, let's call it even an Oregon loss, then you're talking about three straight years undefeated in the Big Ten, whether they're ugly wins or not, even if you get an ugly playoff performance, because you'd imagine they'd be in the playoff in that scenario. Yeah. Is he staying at three for you then with an ugly playoff performance? No, no, I think he'd really go to he would he would stay at three if not drop if they lose two two or three to four games. Which I don't, yeah, I don't it, think I, okay. If they slip up against a Big Ten team, I think we can all agree that there should be no Ohio State should not lose a Big Ten game this year. I think there's, we can all agree on that. There, there's no team on that schedule that I mean they're playing Penn State at home. Right? That's the only contender really in the East, I would say. I mean, even going to Michigan hasn't been as scary in recent years because it seems like Ohio State fans have at least made a more of a presence where it's not as difficult to play at Michigan Stadium oh. as it was 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and so taking that into consideration, that's what I expect out of Ohio State. 11-1, and 12-0, probably a Big Ten championship just because they have the most talent in the Big Ten. But for PJ Fleck, you know, if Minnesota goes nine and three, ten and two, again, that like that's impressive to me because of the talent that he's dealing with. Same with Shiano. Oh, okay, if Shiano gets Rutgers to win seven or eight, that that would be pretty impressive. Well, we're gonna remind you of this when we come back to me because I have a very similar kind of take on my rankings. Yeah. But let's hear real quick from Hayden. Let's hear his top five. You gotta keep this somewhat yeah, condensed because yeah, yeah. this interview might be. <laughs> 40 minutes, so right. trying to keep this quick for everybody. So, Hayden, or give us your top five, and then on top of that, say whatever you want to say about Casey's, because people at home aren't going to be able to see this, but your jaw was on the floor from about three to one as soon as you heard Brian Day wasn't the top guy, which makes us kind of assume we know who your number one's going to be. Yeah, I'll make mine real quick, because we actually, we have, his list isn't like completely not what my, my we have the same top five, it's just different order. Okay, and number one, I'm going to put Ryan Day because he has two Big Ten titles in two years. He's made the playoffs twice, and his only two losses are to Clemson and Alabama. I think he has to be number one. Number two, I'm going to go with Paul Christ. Similar reasons with, I think, Casey, Casey, you had him at number one, I think. Is that true? Number one, yeah, and yeah, I re- I mean, I respect him. I think he does a good. He's done a good job. He's fifty six and nineteen since he's been in the Big Ten, so pretty good. Plus, he has an Orange Bowl win over Miami, which I think is good. Uh, number three, I'm a little bit higher on James Franklin than Casey is. In twenty sixteen, he was the Big Ten and the National Coach of the Year. Now he did split that Coach of the the Big Ten Coach of the Year with Paul Chris. Penn State and Wisconsin both had pretty good years that year. Four, I'm going to go with Kirk Ferentz. Casey hit on just the longevity, how long he's been 
at Iowa. The one knock on him is he hasn't won like a big bowl game. So if Iowa could win a Rose Bowl or any sort of bigger New Year's Six game, that would be, I think he might move up just a little bit on my list. And then five is uh, Pat Fitzgerald because I love him and I think he's amazing. And he does always overachieve. Casey did mention this. The four bowl wins in a row is, I think you mentioned that, is really impressive, including last year they beat Auburn in the Citrus Bowl, so that's really good. I do have some honorable mentions real quick. I just want to mention them before I go to Wally. Honorable mention is Tom Allen, and I would buy stock on him if that was an option. I did have Harbaugh as an honorable mention, but he is trending down, and I would not buy stock. And then eight is I'm a PJ Fleck hater, and I don't think he's good. And so I only included him in this top eight, I guess, because I wanted to slander him. So I don't think he's good, and I don't think that Minnesota will be good. And I might eat my words uh, week one if Minnesota beats Ohio State. So so the last thing that I wanted to add was I really I don't know how you can have Ryan Day anywhere else on the list other than number one because he has two conference titles in two years, and he's won a playoff game. That's more than every single other coach in the conference has done in their whole career, and he's done it in two years. So that's it. I'm going to flip it over to Wally. Well, and one thing I want to say real quick before we get too far into this is because I really – this is one of those philosophical questions for me at least where you might get better results from James Franklin. You might get better results from occasionally like a Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, stuff like that, where they're traditionally going to recruit better. So it to me, it's the recruiting versus the development and production you get from the guys you have on your team that you're really asking yourself about. There's a lot of teams that would love to have that recruiting ability, but if you're not in a state like Pennsylvania or Michigan or something like that, maybe someone like a Kirk Ferentz or Paul Chris or Pat Fitzgerald, those are the kind of guys you want at a program where you're not going to be getting in the high fours, five stars as frequently as everybody else. So that's where, for me, philosophically, I was kind of torn. I left Ryan Day off my list for the fact of bias because I would have had him number one too, Hayden. I completely agree. I thought for me it was a simple number one, but I to avoid the whole bias thing, I decided, hey, I'm going to leave Ryan Day off my list to have just a healthy little discussion for it. Now, here's where it's going to get fun for me. I'm going to work back from five to one, and you're going to see really quick where I ended up falling on the recruiting versus development aspect of coaching in the Big Ten. So for number five for me, I actually went with Tom Allen. I think that we're seeing right now, especially with what's going on in that Indiana program, the momentum they have, it's almost a shame that last year was a shortened season because who knows if Indiana is able to finish that season, regular season at least, with Penix Jr. in this world that he's healthy, what if they finish 9-3, That can catapult a program like Indiana for at least the immediate future. So for me, I thought that he would be a good five. Then four, I went James Franklin. Franklin, of course, being the recruiter that he is, Penn State, the program that it is. I think that the success speaks for itself, but at the same time, if you want to talk about criticizing a coach in a program for underperforming, Penn State's it. Penn State has consistently top 15 classes. And I feel like if you ask a diehard in that fan base, you would probably say that they haven't lived up to your expectations. I mean, is that fair? Would you say, Hayden? 
Well, to me, that's hard because who's the one school they're competing against to try and win the conference? It just it just so happens that they're in the same side of the conference. You know what I mean? If Penn State was in the somehow in the West, I think we'd have a whole different discussion on what James Franklin is. It just it happens to be the situation that they're put in facing the juggernaut of the conference. No, I think that's actually a really good fair or fair point with James Franklin there. I mean, you're right. When you're facing against Ohio State, you're kind of stuck in that unfortunate spot where you have to play them every year, and odds are you're going to lose more often than you win. So that's fair. But I thought he was fair to put them there at four. For me, number three, it's got to be Kirk Ferentz and that Iowa coaching staff for the simple fact that they're another example of getting a lot out of not so much, where if it wasn't for Wisconsin – how much are we talking about Iowa being one of the best offensive line schools in the entire country? They're also becoming, not becoming, they've basically become the tight end school of the entire Big Ten, if not bigger than that. So Iowa, they've done a great job. It looks like Ferentz is probably on the back couple years of his Iowa career. But even if he is at the tail end of his career, he's had an excellent tenure there. They're going to have a really difficult time replacing a guy like Ferentz. Ferentz is established. He's a solid recruiter for where they are, for what that kind of program is. So when they eventually move on, it's going to be a natural response for everybody in the Big Ten to say, is Iowa going to take a significant step back? Or are they going to be basically be able to maintain the program success and credibility that they've achieved over the last couple decades? That'll be interesting. But for me, they're a solid three. Now, number two, you guys were both very high on them in that program. But Paul Christ and that Wisconsin coaching staff, they are just phenomenal at what they do. We've seen it seen now multiple times in a row where that athletic department at Wisconsin is able to find another solid coaching hire after losing somebody that we thought once they're gone, it's what we just talked about with Iowa. Are they going to be able to maintain that success? I mean, going all the way back to Alvarez, we're playing someone with Bielma. Bielma, was it immediately Gary Anderson? Who was it? Yeah, Gary Anderson. Or- Gary Anderson was the most forgettable tenure oh, yeah. in the history of Wisconsin was that football. Two years? It might have been two years, but even so. And then you go to Paul Chris. Yeah. And Paul Chris just feels like he stepped into the role, and at the very least, he's maintained it. You could argue they elevate it. It's unfortunate for Chris. He's also in an era where Ohio State and other Big Ten teams are getting more athletic, where Wisconsin really doesn't have that ability with the states they recruit in, with the basically program identity that they have. They're the old-school Mahler-type football team on both sides of the ball. And it's just not going to match up. Typically with that winner of the Big Ten East, who knows, as football changes, speed is getting more prevalent all over the country, regardless of what state you're in. Who knows, maybe Wisconsin can kind of make take that next step with Chris in the near future. Now, here's crazy, but here's my number one. Casey, you touched on it earlier with two. You were worried that he was too high there. Pat Fitzgerald, to me, is... Arguably the most underrated coach in the country. Forget Big Ten. If he wasn't so passionately loyal to that Northwestern fan base, alumni association, that city, he would have been gone long ago. There's been people that want him not only at the college level, people thought he had the temperament and the ability to make a transition to the NFL level at some point. Whether that's an immediate head coaching job or if he's starting as a defensive coordinator with an established coach, who knows, because it's not going to happen. Because he loves Northwestern more than anybody else on the face of the earth. <laughs> and who would have thought that 15, 20 years ago, I can't remember, it was, it's not, obviously not Gary Anderson, 
the guy that passed away that was their head coach right oh, before. Oh, gosh. He was, at the time, he was a legend at Northwestern. Is it Randy Walker for some reason? I feel like it was Walker. Oh, my gosh. This is so oh. bad. You know, at least we're not a college football podcast, yeah. so we don't have to know this stuff. <laughs> While you're looking that up, Casey, but my point is, he was a legend in Northwestern's own right. And then what happened? He disappears, or he leaves, unfortunately. We all know what happened. We didn't expect the next guy to come in and elevate that program even farther. Now we're talking about Pat Fitzgerald and that Northwestern Wildcats team playing in the Big Ten title game, what, two times in four years? And it's just unfortunate for them, they're going to go up against, in both of those, a very good Ohio State Buckeyes team. And they played Ohio State really hard this year. Really hard. And I think that's, again, a credit to Pat Fitzgerald. I was telling Hayden earlier, but I have to share a quick little story for both of you two that I think you're going to cringe a little bit, but you're going to think it's really funny. And of course, it makes sense. My buddies that listen up in Northeast Ohio already know this story. All my friends from Walsh. My buddy David Clavin and I would always walk after lunch period. We'd go up and see one of our favorite coaches on the football team just to hang out for five minutes before we go back to class. We're walking through the halls. We just so happen to be a pretty decent program in Northeast Ohio at the time. Pat Smith is a offensive line prospect at the time for our school. Who's walking alongside him as he's walking down the stairwell? We're walking up. Pat Fitzgerald. So here we go. I'm going up. I'm immediately geeking out. I'm fanboying really hard because I know immediately who this is. He's 6'4". Looks just like Pat Fitzgerald. We're in a Northwestern quarter zip. It's probably Pat Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. So I'm all fired up. I'm like, dude, you're the man. Congratulations this year. Congratulations on the bowl game. I was so flustered and so excited. This was like literally the week after Northwestern lost in overtime to Missouri in their bowl game. Really? <laughs> and I just congratulated him on the bowl game. And immediately after, I'm like, I, I'm i sorry. You, know, I hope you know what I mean. And he, thank God, he's the nicest guy on earth. He's actually who you see. He's like, oh, dude, don't worry about it. It's all good. I really appreciate it. But I was beat red for about two and a half hours. <laughs> and of course, my buddy next to me, who's another diehard sports fan, just gives it to me. Just, it's hilarious. To every, just pain. Yeah. So the best way I can describe it is you congratulate a coach in the Big Ten on him winning a ball game right after losing an overtime heartbreaker the week before. But anyways, so I've never forgot that. I've always loved Pat Fitzgerald since then. Hayden, I know you wanted to give one more little quick antidote on Pat Fitzgerald. Okay, so I'll give you the final word then. And then we'll get into a couple topics real quick. Before we wrap it up, we're going to throw it over to the interview. Quick show for you guys. We'll be back to normal next week. Hayden, what do you got? I really want to give both of you props for having Pat Fitzgerald so high on your list because if I had to redo mine, I would probably, you guys convinced me, I would probably have him a little higher than what I do. That's it. There's nothing else. I would have him higher on my list, though. Casey, got anything for us? Yeah, I, I guess the only thing, well, first off, the that coach was Randy Walker before. Uh, oh, good call. Pat you did drill it. But, yeah, so the, the common thing with the two coaches that you – had as one and two, Wally, is that they don't, they're always missing a quarterback. Like Wisconsin's always been, you know, everyone's always said they're a quarterback away. Graham Mertz is the guy after Illinois last year. It'd just be really interesting to see what they would do with a quality. I, I mean, I guess I don't know if it's quality quarterback or quality quarterback coaching because Hunter Johnson, who was um, Northwestern's quarterback either 
two years ago or last year, I forget. He's a five-star Clemson commit. So obviously he's got talent, but yeah, that just stood out to me that those two those two teams usually seem like they're a quarterback away, and that'll lose you the conference championship. But I say every year. Well, amazingly enough, I'm glad he brought it up because maybe without COVID a year, Graham Mertz does have that ability to take the next step. You have to wonder how more guys don't want to go to Wisconsin. They have always one of the best lines in the entire country. Yeah. One of the best running games in the entire country. Solid defense. I mean, even when Russell Wilson went there for one year, they went to the Rose Bowl, should have won that game. Shouldn't have. They lost two Hail Mary games in that regular season. Or who knows, maybe they're in the BCS title game. Because, I mean, they lost in the Braxton Miller Hail Mary with like 20 oh. seconds left. And yeah. then the Kirk Cousins Hail Mary at the one-yard line as time expired as well. So those are the only two regular season losses they had. Maybe Graham Mertz is the guy. If there's a quarterback, then kind of elevate them past Ohio State. Why not Graham Mertz? Yeah. Why not Wisconsin right, now? Are you saying Graham Mertz is uh, the next Russell Wilson? I'm saying he's probably <laughs> the best thing they have to yeah. over Russell Wilson. It's Russell not Joel Stave anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's Jack, all I can say. Jack Cohn. <laughs> oh, yeah, some of these legends. <laughs> oh, Who's the guy there? Scott Tolzien. I mean, Tolzien, Alex Hornibrook. Oh, yeah. You can do this all day. It's been rough. But – that's a good point to actually throw it over into our topics today. Think over the next little bit, figure out a new topic for you guys. I don't know if we'll have it today or if we'll figure it out for you and release it through Twitter over the week. But anyways, let's get into the topics for you guys. We only got a few, like I said, shorter episode. Josh Gaddis gets a one-year extension worth up to $1.4 million with incentives and a base pay of $1 million through 2022. The incentives include top two scoring offense in the Big Ten, top 10 scoring offense in the FBS, and $50,000 per win over eight, with a max of 12 being obviously $200,000 due to math 50 times four. We're at 200000 We all got there. Do you guys think this is a good move for Michigan? Again, just to keep this simple, because Casey and I are in the same spot. We have one mic, so keep me from getting too confused. Casey, let's hear your thoughts first. Do you think this is a good move? Sounds like there's been a lot of mixed reactions so far about this. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't think it's a good move. I think Josh Gaddis should have been fired last year when they let go. Um, you know, basically the entire coaching staff. I think starting fresh would have been is what Michigan needed if they weren't going to fire Harbaugh. You know, clean house. And I think Gaddis should have been a part of that. I you know yeah. I've heard people say that they like the extension because of the recruiting. Gaddis will say that he's going to be here through 2022 now. He can recruit that. But you know what hurts recruiting? I think we already know is piss poor performance. Like, And that's exactly what Michigan's offense was. Basically all of 2020 except for the Minnesota game, even the Rutgers game when they put up 48, it was a struggle. We all know Rutgers was improved but not a great team by any means. And then outside of the four-game stretch, in 2019, the uh, Notre Dame, gosh, Michigan State, Indiana, Maryland, I want to say, was the four-game stretch right before Ohio State when I was like, oh, you know what? Michigan's offense looks good. Outside of those four, I, they, they just have not looked good. They have no running game. They never stretched the ball vertically at all, it seems like. And especially in 2019 when you had Nico Collins and Donovan Peoples-Jones, I just am not impressed with his offense. He's unproven, really. He was the co-OC at Alabama and wide receivers coach before he came to Michigan. 
And, you know, Loxley said it, that he didn't, he didn't call one play at Alabama. So I, I think it shows. And even when he first got to Michigan, you know, they took forever to get a decent product out there. But, yeah, overall, I don't like it. What do I know, I guess? So, well, I mean, I guess this was a good segue, too, coming off of top five coaches in the Big Ten, where you can kind of ask the question of, coming from Alabama, there were high expectations. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder how much of this was Josh Gaddis and how much of this was how supremely talented Alabama is. Not to mention, Alabama's not the place where there's one or two coaches. It's a big pond with a lot of big fish there. Oh, yeah. So you're not doing it all by yourself. So, Hayden, I guess going to you real quick, from an Ohio State perspective, looking from the outside and on Michigan, what are you thinking about this move? Is this something that Buckeye fans should have the needle move one way or another at all? Or how are you feeling about this move? I'm going to go from just an outside perspective, not Ohio State for first. I think a one-year extension is kind of weird to begin with because, what, do they – you're giving a guy a one-year extension. Do you not have confidence in him to be a – like, I just don't understand a one-year. Yeah, Casey's shaking his head. No, they don't have confidence in him. So why are you giving him a one-year extension to begin with? Just kind of bizarre to me. From an Ohio State perspective, I don't think it moves the needle either way, really. Until something changes at the top, I don't think if he, I mean if he's gone, sure they're going to hire somebody else. But who's to say that's going to work out? If he stays, I don't think Josh Gaddis is anything amazing. I mean he hasn't proven he hasn't proved it at least. So I don't think it moves either way, really. Well, the one guy I kind of I guess thought of when I think of Josh Gaddis, and you go from Alabama, the high expectations, a little bit different, obviously. But we're talking about Matt Canada is the way I also look at it, too, where there were so much supreme expectations with the LSU connection and all that. And not to necessarily say he didn't live up to – I guess that's what you're saying is he didn't live up to the expectation. But were the expectations too high to begin with? Because that's tough on these guys as well. Because you're expecting – at least I feel like when Josh Gaddis was hired, it was this, this is the guy. He's going to make Michigan kind of – an Alabama-like yeah. offense. Speed in space. Speed in space. Speed in space. And then all of a sudden, you know how if the offense is scoring a lot, that affects both sides of the ball. If you can score a lot of points, people want to go play for that team. They want to be, whether you're on offense or defense, you want to be a part of that culture change. You want to be a part of that growth to elevate a program. And I think that people expected it to be a program-changing hire. And... It's almost unfair going in because then you're expecting the guy to be the perfect hire or it's a failure. Yeah. And I don't know. I get, So I'm interested to see now that he has, albeit a very short leash extension, he has a little bit of that. Does that make him able to, I don't know, get a little more aggressive, a little bit more relaxed in his role to kind of get him back into maybe that Alabama-like Josh Gaddis state of mind? We'll see. It's obviously going to be tough in that division. That I mean, if you're going to be one of – it's one of the hardest divisions in college football right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But we are going to switch real quick again. Athlon releases its 2021 Big Ten preseason all-conference team for the upcoming season. Hey, and we haven't been going to you a lot first tonight because, again, Casey and I are together. I'm stupid. I don't want to make an audio mistake. But now that I'm literally thinking about it, I want to hear your thoughts on this list. Did you have an opinion on anybody that was too high? Anybody that was too low? Surprise breakout players? 
anything like that when you're looking at this list. Yeah, one thing I noticed right off the bat was first-team quarterback. I thought was really interesting, especially because they have it as Michael Penix, which I think he is good, but it's he's coming off an injury. So it's kind of interesting to see how he, if he can respond to that injury and, and be back to where he was or even better. If so, then I think that might be a good choice. But I'm still kind of concerned that he's a little high. I wonder, Hayden, who do you, who do you think should be the first team quarterback then? Because I think Penix is the most proven, and he might be the best returning, in my opinion. But I think you know this list kind of takes a, you know, a little shot in the dark here about C.J. Stroud being the second team. So I, I just want to know what your opinion was as to who should be first team. I don't know. I it's hard to say who. We don't really know who Ohio State's quarterback is going to be. But I think they're always going to be in consideration. Whoever the starter is out of the three, out of the three guys, whoever it is, is going to be in consideration probably for first team all league. My main concern with Penix was just coming back from from his injury. If he comes back and he's fine, then I yeah, like I said, I think that's probably a good safe pick. He is the most proven guy coming back. But I just I I really just question how if he'll be a hundred percent ready to go by the time. The season starts. Is that cleared up for you? Yeah, I got you. Do you want me to finish my other observations? I only have two more. Yeah, go ahead. So the second thing that I really noticed when looking through this list, and this isn't a little bit off the radar, talking about tight ends, I, Jeremy Rucker was fourth team All Big Ten on this on this list. I thought he might be a little higher because. I think his upside is really, really good. I, and I know Ohio State doesn't utilize the tight ends as much um, as some of, the, some of these other schools, but I thought he might be a little higher. And then the last thing that I was looking at, and unless I'm crazy, I'm pretty sure this is accurate, Michigan only had one guy on the first and second teams, and that's uh, Aiden Hutchinson, which I thought might be a little low. I figured they'd have at least one or maybe two more guys Somewhere on the on the two deep for all conference performers, but yeah, Casey, what are your thoughts, dude? Yeah, that's really a perfect segue into uh, one of the things that stood out to me was Dax Hill at third team. I think in his two years there, he's proven that he is clearly the best player on Michigan's team, and I personally think he's one of the better defensive backs in the in the conference. So he's the first one that stood out to me. Hayden, I think Rucker on fourth team uh, kind of stood out to me as well. But then, you know, I think Hendershot, Hendershot was pretty good last year. And I, I, I do think Jake Ferguson is the best tight end in the conference. So I think Rucker could have been second or third team. But yeah, seeing him at four was kind of surprising to me. I guess looking at the list here, I think Zach Harrison kind of stood out too. Just because the dude's got the talent. He's got the athleticism. He's got the size and everything. He just unproven and like you know like I said earlier I think they are kind of taking a shot in the dark here projecting if you will but I surprisingly going off of that I'm surprised that Seven Banks is only at second team too because I've seen this kid you know going top 10 in mock drafts for 2022 and you know to be honest with you I haven't seen anything that's been too impressive with him but you know Ohio State has a record uh, or a track record of producing Pretty good defensive backs, corners, so Fry Vogel's second team. I didn't notice that. They probably got Wilson and 
you know, love it. Oh yeah, you know that's just some bias there. You know, Fry Fogel, you know, give me a break. <laughs> Fry Fogel tears apart Ohio State last year, tears apart the Big Ten, and he's second team. Yeah, it makes sense. Master Teague won't even be the starting running back halfway through the season. So this was really cool. How in the first like few weeks, you tried really hard to to not troll us about Ohio State. Uh, and it's like progressively you're getting more and more comfortable doing it on the it, podcast. It's, it's just so obvious, though. Like, you've got, like, so many unproven players on this list. Well, you did say, and, and I, I agree. I think track record on all of these kind of lists, regardless if it's the Big Ten or not, you're going to see, I guess, people that make these up. They're typically, if there's a tie or if there's even a close makeup, they're going to almost go on school. Yeah. Because, I mean, realistically... I really believe C.J. Stroud's the Ohio State starting quarterback. Oh, yeah. But it's not even announced that he's the starter and he's the second team all Big Ten quarterback on the list. Now, here's the thing. The way Ohio State quarterbacks have played, there's a realistic chance at the end of the year he is first team and it's not close. But what could happen is he's not the kind of guy that we expect him to be. But, again, maybe because of the Olave and the Wilson connection, in Ruckert even – you're able to elevate the play a little bit, so that's why they have them there. But yeah, this time of year, I almost hate these kind of lists because it's almost the same where I don't want to start this because then we'll be talking about it for 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but preseason rankings are so stupid to me. Yeah. I wish that they didn't come out with a ranking period. AP, coaches, whatever. I wish they didn't have a single ranking until October. Get into the first couple weeks of conference play. Get non-conference out of the way. Get an actual feel on what these teams are. Right. Because half the time, you're going to have, I mean, the SEC, we're obviously Big Ten guys. You can start a team. It, it's not usually Tennessee, but I'm going to use them for example. Let's say they started the year eight, and then they underachieve all year, and they end up seven and five. Mm-hmm. But their five losses are to perceived beasts of the, the Alabamas, the Auburns. Yeah. That seven and five Tennessee team ends the year 24. Mm-hmm. But then let's say Indiana, because it's Indiana – they finish the year 10-2, and two, but because they start so much lower, they have that basically they have to climb the ladder that other teams didn't have because they were just awarded an arbitrary preseason ranking. Yeah. So, again, that's opening a whole nother can of worms, but it's the same way that I look at these preseason all-big team or all-American list. Yeah. I hate them, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, so that's me poo-poo and the whole thing we're doing here. So that's probably good for the show. But do either of you have any uh, last words before we throw it? Hey, nice to see your hand. Let's hear what you got to say. Yeah, I just want to point out, we I, I forget what show it was, but we talked about potential, I, I think, sleepers in the conference or like who you would take as like a, a, a stock up. And I picked Jahan Dotson. And he did make an appearance on the first team, on, on this first team all-league prediction. So I kind of do want to give myself a little props there. Hey, congratulations to you and the other 40% of people that probably had Jahan Watts or Dotson on the first team, yeah. Big Ten list. Congratulations, <laughs> Jahan Watson, buddy. baby. Jahan Watson. All right. Well, that is going to be it for our topics of the week. We're going to actually throw it over now to our first ever interview. We're really excited about this one. Drew Meyer. If you're a Wisconsin Badger fan, you already know him. Most games ever played as a Badger. Most punts ever kicked as a Wisconsin Badger. And then, of course, he's also a special teams analyst now under Bronco Mendenhall down there in Virginia. So we're really excited to have Drew Meyer on. Let's throw it over to him now. 
And now we welcome on a very special guest. You Badger fans already know him. He played with the team from 2012 till 2015. He had the most punts in Wisconsin history with 256. He's tied for most games played in school history with 54. And after he left school, he coached special teams at his high school, Arrowhead, from Heartland, Wisconsin. Not a big deal. It's a great school. Look into that. Before going to Bronco Mendenhall's UVA program, as a GA for three years. Now he's entering his second season as a special teams analyst. We have a big welcome here for Drew Meyer. Drew, how are you doing? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. And that introduction was way too kind, Wally. I was telling Hayden, all right, we're going to get you into the Wisconsin Hall of Fame. I don't care what I have to do. We're going to get you there. Hey, having the most punts all time doesn't mean I was a good punter. It just means I was able to keep my job. Let's put it that way. I was telling him, it don't matter about the whole, what, eighth, for average yards per punt, you're a directional punter. You guys were just punting from like the 40 and in all the time. So that ain't your fault. You were a great punter. It was about limiting returns. I like to think of it that way, Wally. Net punt, you know, that's a statistic we like to focus on. Absolutely. If you can get the, the fair catch there, we're golden. But otherwise, you just met Hayden. Hayden just met you. Drew's a great guy. You guys are really going to enjoy this. Hayden, do you have any opening questions for our guest tonight? No, I really wanted to start off by saying it's all about that net, baby, that net punt. Oh, yeah. Uh, we only gave one one touchdown in my in my career as a punter, and it was to your Ohio State Buckeyes there, Wally. So you got, you got me there. You did this to yourself. I really wasn't going to bring this up until later, but a lot of people don't know coming on, you and I were high school teammates, so be it I didn't exactly play like you played. You were a safety. I got to see it. You were a good safety, too. Best defense in the entire state. Should have won a state championship. That's not a big deal. We won't get into it. What is the difference once you get to that college level? Because I remember I was at that game, believe it or not, and you come running up. You're at like the 40. You look good, and it just looked like you guessed the wrong side. I just have to hear what your thoughts are. When you get to this level, these guys are a different breed. I can't believe you just went straight to the fact that I just got beat flat out. Like, I thought you might set it up, hey, like, you hit a good punt, but it was just like, hey, you were in position, you didn't make the play. Um, so I appreciate the honesty, but uh, but yeah, no, that was 100% it. Yeah, it, the, uh, it was Corey Philly Brown. He stepped right. He stopped everyone on our left side of our coverage, you know, flying on the field. He stepped left, got the other side to freeze, and he split it up the middle. And uh, the, the worst part was, Wally, is as I came running up on it and I saw it and I realized the parting in the Red Sea and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I got to get in there. So I go to start running and the official's right in my way, the middle field judge. And so I had to go around him and then try to like get settled. But at that point, you know, like you, like you mentioned, I played defense. You know, I started for two years in, in high schools and, you know, I had some opportunities, smaller level to go kick, pawn, and play defense. But I was like, come on, I was 6'2", 75 pound corner you like I wasn't going to go in there and tackle anyone and put my face mask in there but uh but then when it came to feeling this punt you know you get up there you try to get your feet settled so you can change direction and the guy gave me a head fake and then he took off to the field and I just turned straight around I didn't dive I didn't do it I just looped right around and just kept running and and clearly was not fast enough to catch him but that's when I realized you just got to dive you got to try to sweep the leg do whatever you can you know, go full karate kid on him. Like, whatever you got to do to get him down, get him down. Well, the one thing I will say then, 
is, well, first of all, we'll blame the referee. I'm good with that. But this is my last bit of Wisconsin slander for this entire time, unless you bring it upon yourself again. I can't be held responsible. But I will say this. At least none of the students saw it because Wisconsin doesn't have their student section show up until the second quarter in big games. So don't even worry about it. No one remembers. You're really going after us. I mean, as long as we're on this topic, let's just throw out the, the 59 to nothing game. Like, let's get that all the way too. So, except for in that game, we only gave up negative one return yards to Jalen Marshall. So, you know, some would say that the special teams in our punt unit might have been the only bright spot in that game. You know, obviously playing in the Big Ten Championship, anytime you can do that, it's an amazing opportunity. You know, Cardell Jones and the, and the squad, they came out and, and, and they really played lights out. I mean, some would say that we helped you guys get that national championship, that we helped propel, you know, Ohio State into the playoffs. Had we kept it a closer game, they might not have gotten in, but... You know, I, I give them all the credit. That was a heck of a win, and, and they came to play that day. Do you look back, you know, just because you brought that, that game up, do you look back at that game as, like, almost, like, prideful that you helped a Big Ten team start that acceleration toward a championship, or are you just – I mean, obviously the score it wasn't good, but maybe – you know, SEC fans love the SEC pride. Are you a little Big Ten pride there? See, the one thing I've never understood the SEC pride, to be honest, because I hate every other 10 in the Big Ten, um, or every other team in the Big Ten, excuse me. But so, I mean, besides Northwestern, I always liked Northwestern because the, the kicker ahead of me at our high school, Jeff Budzine, went there. And we were really close. Uh, one of my old coaches, actually, who was on that Wisconsin staff when we lost to Ohio State, he's their special teams coordinator now. And, and he and I, we actually talked this morning, we were going back and forth and so I always do kind of root for Northwestern when Wisconsin's not playing them. North, uh, Nebraska was the other one. Um, Sam Foltz was a good friend of mine. And, and so I always pulled for, pulled for the old skirters and, and uh, you know, as long as we weren't playing them as well. But those were really the only two teams in the Big Ten I, I ever really cared about and, and really liked. You know, I had some friends on other, on other programs, but at the same time, like, I wanted to beat them. Like, we were competitive. And, you know, I hated Minnesota. And at the time when, when I was there, you know, we had a couple close games with them, but we still had the streak going. We let it get all the way to 15, you know, before the one class, let it, let the ax go, you know, and I, I don't know. I feel bad because, because our kicker Raphael was, was on that team and he and I are really close. He's like a younger brother. He's family to me, but you know, I, I like to joke around with the guys like, Hey, that's, that's like the, the stepchild, you know, the ugly stepchild, you know, they're the ones that lost the ax, you know, cause there's something, there's pride in that and, and holding on to that thing. And, um, but when it comes to Ohio State, I mean, I, well, you're going to hate me for this, but I, I could not stand. They were my least favorite team in college football for the longest time just because, A, they, they always beat us. We, we never got them. We lost on the, the Braxton Miller Hail Mary my true freshman year. Uh, we lost in overtime the next year, which was the year I gave up that punt return. The following year, we went to the shoe and... It was a one-score game, and we gave up a touchdown in the last play before halftime. We gave up a Hail Mary. We dropped a pick the play before. It went through one of our DB's hands, and then they converted the Hail Mary the next play. And then 59 to nothing was that, that following year. And so that was kind of a culmination, I feel like, of all those close wins. But that game, I mean, they just – they were so good that season. They were locked in. I don't know. You know, Urban Meyer, I mean, he gets teams ready to play for big games better than any coach I've ever seen. I mean, his track record speaks for itself. You know, there's a lot about the Ohio State program I didn't like and didn't respect growing up and the whole issue with Tressel getting fired. And obviously he had a great career there as a, as a coach and, and accomplished a ton. But when, you, when you're in the Big Ten and, and the good teams, you hear about violations, that always stings a little bit more and it, you know, builds up some animosity. And, and 
you know, but, but across the board, you know, Penn State, Michigan State, Iowa, you know, I hated them all. <laughs> and so, so I, I've never gotten the whole conference pride thing. Yeah, okay, and we won't pump too much of the tires of Ohio State here. I know the people that listen to us probably already hate us for that because uh, Hayden is also an Ohio State Buckeye, and he's also a diehard homer too. But don't don't fool yourself. I can see Twitter too. I can see your likes and stuff, so I know you don't like Ohio State, but we'll leave that for right now. But I do want to ask you a question here before we get going too far into this. You had kind of an odd situation that a lot of college athletes never have, especially college football players. You got to experience four head coaches, albeit very Alvarez two times for one game. But that's kind of bizarre. You don't see that at the college game, especially at a Power 5 school like that. I don't want to put you on the spot and say, did you have a favorite? But if you have one, feel free to tell us. But what does that kind of do in a locker room? Because that just seems to me there's not that consistency. And you really were there in the golden age of Wisconsin. You talked about how you were there for basically your true freshman year, went to a Rose Bowl, following year went to a Rose Bowl. And even beyond that, you're a 9 or a 10 win team each of the years you were going. So it didn't look like it faced you guys, but I wanted to know from inside the locker room what that was really like. Definitely, yeah. So our worst year was an 8 win team that we went to the Rose Bowl and lost by less than a touchdown. And so, and again, I, I was a punter, you know. I played a small role in that. And I always joke around when people are like, oh, you have – you know, the most punts in school history. It's like, that just means we were really good at getting into the, in the field goal range and taking a sack or getting a penalty on third down is all that really means. And so, uh, you know, that doesn't make you, you good because you went out there a whole bunch, but you know, I was happy in my career. I mean, there were some things that, you know, punts you wish you had back every now and again, but, but yeah, to, to get to experience three head coaches. I mean, I just learned a lot. Like to sum it up, I got to learn a lot and I always wanted to coach, and I think every player wants to have one head coach for their whole career. And I was that same way. Uh, you know, I loved my experience with Coach Bielema. I'm ex- so excited that he's back in the Big Ten and, and can't wait to play those guys this year. We actually play in week two um, here at UVA. And so, you know, excited to see him and some of the guys that are on staff there, you know, were with us when we were at Wisconsin. And so I learned a ton of, from him. You know, obviously, you know, preparation was the first thing I learned from him and how to prepare, how to prepare to win and how to prepare to win that week. Because all that mattered was the game that week and the opponent that week. And not looking too far ahead, not worried about what happened in the past, but refocusing each week, going one and zero each week, and how to prepare to do that through physical football. You know, just going to beat them down, wear them down, and, and we had some great runs. And uh, I mean, pun, no pun intended, but you know, a lot of great runs. You know, between Monty and Melvin and James White and all those guys, and um, and then Coach Anderson came in, and he had a very different style, very different approach. But a couple of the big things I learned from him were. You know, he always talked about players make plays and players win games. And if you have good players, you'll win games. And you see that across the country. Teams that have great recruiting classes typically win a lot of games. And, you know, good players make it a lot easier to game plan. And they make it a lot easier to to diagram up, to scheme. Uh, You know, when you got guys that can do multiple things that are dynamic players, that just opens up the playbook. And so really learning and, and a learning how to work through transition. And so that was our first transition to a head coach. You know, we didn't really see it coming. And then, uh, you know, one other thing I learned during that time is our old head strength coach, Evan Simon. Coach Simon, he was a great guy. And during one of our workouts, we had this big kind of almost coming to Jesus out on the field one day while we were, you know, finishing up our run. And he was like, guys, this logo, this Motion W, it was here long before we got here and it'll be here a long time after you leave. And understanding that 
coaches come and go, players come and go, but that school, that program, that means something. And what can we do to leave a legacy? What can we do to leave our mark? And how can we continue to try to make it a better place for the guys that come behind us? Um, that was one thing that really stood out through those transitions. But that also through that was that the players are the ones that are going to be there the whole time. Coaches can come and go, but the players are going to be there. And I remember when that second transition happened, then when, when get, you know Coach Anderson left and went out to Oregon State, a lot of us, we had been through it already. So we looked at all the young guys. We said, hey, lean on us, stick around, don't look to transfer, don't feel sorry for yourself. We got you. Like, we can take care of you guys. We've been through it. We understand what it's like. Just buy in. Whoever the new coach is, whatever the new staff wants, buy in and go. Because if you sit here and you worry about, well, the coach that recruited me left, you're worrying about the wrong things. You just got to go. You know, no expectations. Whatever they ask, just do it. And obviously for the older guys, it was so much fun to have Coach Chris come back because he was our offensive coordinator our freshman year before he left to go to Pittsburgh and become their head coach. And so, you know, again, to have it was almost like a little homecoming. You know, Coach Chris came back. Coach Rudolph came back, you know. And so Coach Rudolph was our tight ends coach my freshman year. Coach Chris was quarterbacks in OC. Now they're head coach and offensive coordinator. I'm trying to think who else. I mean, there were, there were a ton of guys that they, they came back on that staff, but, but those two definitely stood out. I know uh, Coach Turner, you know, Mickey Turner, he was a former Badger that we grew up watching. He was on staff as a tight ends coach. He's still there. Coach Settle, you know, was back as our running backs coach, and, and he had been there for some time. Yeah, Taylor Melhoff, too, he came back, and I would worked out with Taylor training, you know, when I was in high school, and he was a former Wisconsin kicker. So there was just – it felt like a homecoming, guys that we knew, guys we knew how they coached, and it was just, just so much fun to, to have those guys. And so, I mean, I loved all three staffs. I learned a lot. And Coach Chris, I mean, the biggest thing – that I tell our guys still that I learned from him was that you got to give yourself a chance to have a chance. And I love coach Chris cause he's genuine. He's who he is. You know, he doesn't try to be anybody else. I mean, all three of those head coaches were just amazing guys and amazing people, but have, give yourself a chance to have a chance. It seems really, you know, really basic, but it, it that's, it, it's the heart of everything. Give yourself a chance in practice to have a great game. Give yourself a chance by going to bed at a decent time, by hydrating correctly, by taking care of your body, watching what you, how you feel yourself, you know, what kind of foods are you putting in? Are you going out to the bars and going to Ian's pizza late night, you know, and now all of a sudden you can't keep weight off because you're eating at two 30 in the morning after the bars close, you know, like give yourself a chance to have a chance, you know, uh, what can you do? You know, as a punter, give yourself a chance for a good pump by having a good punt drop. Like if you have a bad drop as a punter, you don't have a chance to, to hit a good ball, you know? So what can you do that's going to give yourself a chance to have success? So that I, you know, I use that with our guys all the time here at UVA and, and, and they're probably sick of me saying it, but um, that stuck with me and it always will. I know you kind of touched on Bielema. Just what are your thoughts on him coming back to the Big Ten, Illinois? And do you think Illinois has been a little bit of a struggle here lately? Do you think he can turn them around to get them a little bit more respectable than they have been in the past? Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier. I'm really excited that he that he's back in the conference. Um, I mean, Coach, he, you know, Coach B. He he grew up. He played at Iowa. You know, coached at Wisconsin. Like he's got a lot of experience in the Big Ten. He understands what the landscape's like, what it takes to win and be successful in recruiting there. And Illinois is one of those schools that they always had talent. I mean, in my career, we'd always it normally was a four quarter game where we'd take them. You know, three quarters it was pretty close. One two score game maybe, and then they would finally kind of crack in that fourth quarter and knowing coach B knowing the kind of program he runs, what he's about, they're going to play discipline, physical football, and they always had athletes. And so to combine all that together, you know, I think that they got a great chance and especially where, where they are with, 
you know, St. Louis nearby with Chicago, obviously there's some great recruiting hotbeds locally nearby in their footprint. And, you know, it's one of those where they're on our schedule for the next two years. And I know just talking with our staff, I'm always trying to tell them like, Hey, these, these guys are going to be pretty good. Knowing the coaching staff, knowing the guys that are there, you know, Bart Miller, their offensive line coach. When he was a GA for us at Wisconsin, he took over after we fired our line coach my second year. And we ran for over 500 yards twice, I think with him coaching the offensive line as a GA and he's gone on. He's been the head of line coach in Minnesota. Um, he was at Florida Atlantic before that. And then out of Wyoming and Ohio. And we played him when he was at Ohio too. And, and they did a great job running the ball, moving, you know, moving guys off the line. Terrence Jamison, their D line coach too, was a former GA for us at Wisconsin. And he's gone on to have a great career at you know, a couple different schools. He's been at Texas tech and Purdue most recently, you know, Aaron Henry is a guy that was a captain my freshman year at Wisconsin that he's coaching, you know, some of their secondary, uh, just an amazing individual and human being. And so they got the great staff there. They got good people in that building and, you know, they know the landscape, they know the conference and, and they got some good recruiting areas. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how they, you know, how long it might take, you know, we always say here at Virginia, we say it, it wasn't a matter of if, but when, and, you know, obviously 2019, we went on to win the division here at, at UVA. We won the coastal and got to go to the, the Orange Bowl after playing the ACC championship game. And, and, you know, obviously we're still looking to grow, but we're, you know, we got a four or five year, six year head start on those guys. But, you know, it, it, I'm excited to see what they bring, especially to the Big Ten West and what that kind of does to that, to that division. Yeah, I'm glad you actually brought up Illinois because you probably haven't heard it, but we regrettably kind of poke fun at Illinois quite a bit, especially for those 11 a.m. Central Time champagne starts. So I think this is actually a really good chance to pose a question to you that we kind of did to ourselves a few weeks ago here. Outside of Camp Randall, outside of the Rose Bowl, can't use those, where you played or your coach, either one, did you have a favorite venue or a favorite atmosphere that you were a part of? Again, obviously can't be Wisconsin. I'm not, but we also have to extend it. Can't be UVA either. Got to get that out of the way. No homerism there. Is there a favorite place you ever played or coached? Definitely. So, so there are a couple that, you know, that really stand out. And so, I mean, anytime you get into an NFL venue, it's always really cool. And so, you know, playing at Lucas Oil, Big Ten Championship Games was awesome. Playing it, you know, in Jerry World down in Arlington. My senior year, we opened with Alabama there. So that was, that was awesome. Houston was pretty cool. You know, it, it, where the Texans play, that was a pretty neat stadium, except for it was so humid and hot there. And then now at UVA, though, we played at Miami like four of the five years. Or, yeah, this will be my fourth time, or my fifth time, I think playing there because of playing the Orange Bowl there as well. Uh, but Hard Rock is a beautiful, really, really cool stadium. I really enjoy it every time we get the chance to go down and play there. Uh, we got another night game there though, so those are always the nice three thirty, four o'clock, four fifteen morning, you know, morning arrivals on the way back. So that that's a little bit of a pain, but but the venue itself is beautiful, um, really well done. It's just a, a really cool stadium, and so um, obviously the Rose Bowl. But when you take out you know those type of venues, Nebraska that really stands out to me. We, we got to play at Clemson this year, which was cool. I, I wish they would have been able to be at full capacity as, as a crowd to see that. We were supposed to play at Florida State, and then you know that game got canceled the morning of the game, um, unfortunately, because I was really looking forward to seeing that. You know, we, every, every week, whenever we're playing a big team that's got a tradition or something, we try to you know, blast whatever it is. So whether it's Virginia Tech, we blast, uh, what is it, Enter Sandman. And then when we play Florida State, you know, the Tomahawk Chop, we're blasting that song all practice long. And our guys love it. We buy into it. You know, everyone's doing it. Uh, we have a lot of fun with that. And uh, so we were really looking forward to, to hearing that live and seeing that in person. 
but Nebraska, there's something special about that place. And obviously it means a, a ton to me now. And it, it always meant a lot to me beforehand too, just because I, I remember the first time we played there it was a night game. It was my first year starting. We did the old classic throwback jerseys. It was kind of like a special deal. It was the only time in my career we did that. And yeah, it was, it was a big game and we got up 24 to three. We ended up losing and they came back and won. And, you know, thankfully we got them again in, in the big 10 championship and took care of business and, and got after them in that game, you know, put 70 on them. But that regular season game, I've never heard a stadium get more excited for fourth down and for punts than at Nebraska. And we got to play there twice. We got to play there my senior year too. And I was so pumped when the schedule came out. I was at home. I remember when the schedule got released and I looked at my mom and I was like, oh my gosh, we get to go back to Lincoln. They had the best chocolate milk at the hotel the night before the game. There are certain things you remember as players. They had the best chocolate milk. Um, their fans, they would clap for you when you showed up. They were super nice. They knew the game of football. If you made a good play in the game, they'd clap for you. Their kind of tradition that they had at the time, I think they still got it going, but it was let me clear my throat. And so kind of like how we had jump around, they had let me clear my throat, but they played it at a strategic momentum changing point in the game. And so their fullback, I think it was Janovich, he busted off like a 60-yard touchdown run on us to take the lead in the fourth quarter. And next thing you know, the whole stadium's just going wild. They're playing Let Me Clear My Throat. Everyone's dancing. They got their shoes up in the air. I mean, it was nuts. And yeah, every fourth down, even in that game too, people going nuts. And I'm sitting there like, yo, it's fourth down. It's a punt. Like, what, what's going on? But these people cared and were invested. And man, was that a fun place to play. And whether it was at night, whether it was during the day, um, every time they score that first touchdown, they release all the balloons. Like that was just, and the history there. And just everywhere you look, there's names that you grew up hearing about and watching. And I mean, I grew up on Eric Crouch, you know, back in the day and just, he was so fun to watch. He was almost like the precursor to Mike Vick, or maybe he was right after Mike Vick, but he was one of those dynamic athletes. And, and uh, so getting to play there was always a really special experience and it's everything to them because, you know, there's no pro team there. And so Nebraska football is their pro team. Yeah. And well, a couple things real quick. First of all, you were saying that there's no crowd that cheers louder for fourth downs and stuff like that. Don't kid yourself, Drew. They were just excited to see you on the field. They were excited to see you drop another 40-yard net punt, fair catch down to the, like the five. So don't sell yourself short. What I will say otherwise, real quick for you, is that we were just talking obviously about the Big Ten and other really great like dope down there in Florida State. And obviously you didn't get a chance to go there yet. Hopefully you have the opportunity. But I want to delve real quick into the Rose Bowl a little bit right before we can transition over to your Virginia days now. But the Rose Bowl, you had the opportunity to be there twice. That just seems like such a special experience. Obviously, Hayden and I have never had that opportunity. I know you guys didn't come out on top in the two games you were there. But do you still look back? Is those, are those two of your favorite games, I guess, that you were ever a part of? Or is the loss kind of sour it enough where it's not really a fond memory for you anymore. Uh, I mean, they're definitely fond memories. I mean, they're, they're some of the best memories I have. I mean, just, you know, Coach Alvarez, one thing he always used to say is, you know, no bowl game is a bad bowl game. You know, every bowl trip's a great bowl trip. It's a celebration of a, of a great season and a job well done. But there's a difference. And there's a difference between, you know, whether it was the Rose Bowl, whether it was the Capital One Bowl, whether it was the Outback Bowl, whether the Holiday Bowl, you know, to my time at Virginia, whether it was the military bowl, you know, Belk bowl, orange bowl. Like, I mean, they're all special, but there's nothing like the Rose bowl. I mean, they call it the granddaddy of them all for a reason. They just do it better. 
the, the means more, the traditions more, you know, there's one thing, you know, the Rose Bowl has never changed its name, you know, like it's always going to be the Rose Bowl. And now the sponsor, you know, presented by Vizio or whatever, like, you know, that might change, but, but the Rose Bowl, whether it was the Lowry's beef bowl, you know, or you go to Lowry's steak. I mean, the best part about the Lowry's beef bowl is, is the cream corn. That's the best part about the beef bowl. It's not, you know, the prime rib is fantastic, but it's the cream corn that, that sets you over the top. Uh, you know, going to improv comedy club, whether it was going to Disneyland. I mean, that bull trip experience, the police escorts, whatever it may be. I mean, it just was so well done. Everyone there is just wearing these, you know, beautiful, you know, red blazers everywhere. I mean, it just, and the orange bowl did that too, you know, but there was something about the Rose bowl and then you get to the game and it's everything. Cause the thing for the Rose bowl is everything is about the game. Everything's a lead up to the game. The events are amazing, but it all leads up to the game that, you know, the Rose bowl parade the morning of, I mean, there's so much pageantry that surrounds this game and then you finally get there and then you kick off and then you hit that point where halftime comes and you come out of the locker room at halftime and you see that sky and you see the mountains and I almost get emotional like thinking about it because it's one of those like I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to get back there and to get that experience my first two years in college football not that I took them for granted, but I remember in the moment trying to soak it in and be like, let me take this in because I don't know if it's ever going to happen again. And understanding how difficult it is to get to those type of games and to the Rose Bowl specifically, there is nothing like it. And it just, it was such a shame this year that they had to move it, um, you know, to, to Cowboy Stadium because it just, there is no, I mean, it's almost like a religious thing for me now. I have to, I mean, I remember growing up watching Ron Dane against UCLA in the Rose Bowl. I mean, just that was one of my first college football memories of all time. And so to get the chance to be a part of that game, to play in that game. I mean, obviously I, I, I wish we would have won that more than anything. You know, it, it's up there with beating Ohio state, you know, <laughs> and like winning, winning those games, you know, two close one score games. I mean, the first year Oregon, I'll never forget coming out in warmups. And that was the first year and the first time they ever wore those Chrome helmets. And they looked like robots. I mean, we couldn't see their faces. They were all tall. They were fast. They were long. They were fast. And, you know, it's like in Friday Night Lights when Preacher Man's telling, you know, the coach, he's like, coach, they're, they're fast. And he's like, yeah, you already said that. I mean, that's, they were gliding in warmups, those players. I mean, that was De'Anthony Thomas, you know, Darren Thomas. Uh, I mean, those guys, they, they were just a phenomenal team and just had so much speed. And I'll never forget De'Anthony Thomas had like a 92 or 96-yard touchdown run. And just flat out outran everyone on our defense. And our guys had angles and he still beat them. And it was just like, what can you do? And that was the that was the game where it ended on the on the spike too. Where we got the first down, Russell ran up, clocked it, and then they they reviewed it and they said that the clock ran out. And so to lose a game like that is heartbreaking when it comes down to an official review and like you feel like you should have a chance at a Hail Mary. You know, we had lost on essentially two Hail Marys that year, so we're like, hey, we can convert this, like, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and it only, and we were at like the 35 yard line or something too. So it wasn't even like it would have been that far, but, uh, so to lose that, that was really tough. And then to, to lose the following year to Stanford too, after the season, we had the ups and the downs. I mean, we started off pretty rough that year. We lost a lot of close games. We lost an Oregon state game out West where we kicked an onside kick It hit their player at 11 yards, bounced back to nine. We recovered it. They overturned it. So, I mean, every time we went, we went West, we lost, we lost to Arizona state out West in my career, but but going out to that Rose Bowl and playing in a, in a hard-fought game, I remember I got roughed pretty bad on a punt where a guy just completely drilled me to the point I even thanked him when we were on the ground after I saw them throw the flag. I said, hey, thanks, man. Because 
we hadn't crossed the 50 at one point in the second half, like the whole the whole second half. And we had fumbled. Monty tried to extend the ball over over the uh, the goal line at one point in the first half. They knocked it out for a fumble. So that took a touchdown off the board that would have could have not necessarily, but could have given us that that lead. But so I thought that the roughing the punter was going to continue our drive, and then they only gave us a running. I mean, and the guy smoked me. It wasn't even close. And so I was like, okay, that's where I can leave my mark, you know. And, and that was actually, I think it was one of my like top three best games in my career. And it was more so because the atmosphere, the environment. And that game was too when, when Coach Alvarez was coaching us. And we really wanted to win that for him. And I'll never forget, you know, and, and Coach Alvarez obviously had an amazing career as a coach, you know, College Football Hall of Fame, but as an athletic director too. I mean, he did an amazing job at Wisconsin and won so many national championships, conference championships. And, but he has this, this aura about him. I mean, we call him the Godfather, the Don. You look, you know, when you see him, you nod to him, you say coach, and, and then he'll nod back and you keep going, you know, because he's got more important stuff to do. And, and it's just, there's a respect level that he has. And, and the night before the game at our typical, you know, travel meeting, or maybe this might've been like the, you know, two nights before at the typical Thursday travel meeting, he got up in front of the team and he said, now some people, they say, I got swag. And I do. He goes, swag's just, knowing more than the other cats out there. And, and from that moment on, I'm like, I don't care what this man tells me to do. I am doing it. <laughs> and um, it just, it was the, it was one of those things I'll never forget. And I'm like, that's when you know you got swag. And I hate that people call like gear swag now, you know, like you get swag at a convention or this and that. I'm like, that is not, it is not a noun. It is not a physically tangible thing. It's something you have. It's a characteristic, you know? And uh, so I'll never forget that. I mean, just and coach brought that, uh, he brought that energy, he brought that experience, he brought that confidence. And to get to play for him at that venue with the pink, you know, sunsets, the, the orange, the pink, the purples over the mountains. I mean, it just, it truly, there's nothing like it. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but it just, the Rose Bowl deserves that time. I do want to have just a, a real quick follow-up because I see, especially for these major bowls, you see guys all the time posting like their bowl gifts that you, that they get. What is the best bowl gift that you ever got while you were at Wisconsin? Yeah, so so to be honest, I uh three three times I got the same gift. <laughs> and so it's so my first year when we went to the Rose Bowl. Um and now, you know, any any bowl that does a bowl suite, they're they're all pretty much the same. Or they're pretty similar. And so the, how the bowl suite works is you get like 6 or 8 points depending on the year of the suite. And then they have different items that are worth different amount of points. So if you, it's eight points total, you can match a six with a two, a seven with a one, two fours. You can get two threes and a two, you know, you can. So some guys use it to get gifts for their siblings or for their family for Christmas, things of that nature. Um, where my freshman year, the guys said, hey, get something you wouldn't typically get. They're like, because this is an experience. It's going to be something you'll have. You'll remember, you'll use, you'll think about the game. But you can go out and you can buy a pair of headphones. You can go out and you can get, you know, trying to think of something else that they have sometimes but uh but so they're like get something you won't you won't typically get and so three of those years of my five years I got lazy boy recliners and so my freshman year both my roommate and I both got those recliners and the nice thing about two you know with bowl games is the bigger the bowl game you know the more revenue it brings in but so the schools will typically give you a gift card kind of as like a congratulations for a great season you know kind of with as a gift with the bowl game. And so we got like a $250 gift card. We got $440 or something in per diem money for the trip because, you know, not every meal or 
you know, is accounted for over the bowl trip. And so they give you money to help you go out so you can get food while you're there. And, and because there's also the fact that the per diem that while you're on the bowl trip, you're giving up that time as a student athlete where you could have been working a job. So they're able to compensate you that way. And so, yeah, so we came home. I mean, I rarely spent any money. I just packed up on goldfish and pretzels and ate a bunch of snacks while we were there instead of some meals. And, and, uh, so I pocketed a bunch of that, that per diem money. And so I left my roommate and I both got recliners. We took them back to our dorm room. We lofted my bed. We put the recliners underneath and then we used the money from the per diem to buy TVs for our dorm room. And so we each got a TV we put in the windows. We had the recliners under my lofted bed. His bed was up in the corner and then we had a pullout couch on the side. And I already had a 22 inch small TV that I'd brought with me. So from, you know, March Madness, our, our room was the spot to be, it was the place to be, you know, we had two recliners, which honestly coming back from a long practice after spring ball, or even in the fall, the next you know year or two, there's nothing better than just kick it back in a recliner and take a nice little 20 minute snooze or say you, you didn't hit the ball as you wanted as a punter. My, my roommate was an offensive lineman and maybe he just had a rough practice where he was getting beat off the edge. You know, he was a tackle. We'd kick it back in the recliners, throw on some Adele, you know, maybe sing, sing a little bit, get, get the feelings out, take a little snooze. And, and then we were ready to go, you know, the next day. So the recliner was definitely the, the best gift um, that, that I got. And we're definitely, for the record, you don't have a choice. We're going to have you back on again in about six months or so. But I have a few questions. We want to switch gears to Virginia a little bit, talk about what you got going on now. And before we get into the coaching aspect, I felt like it was a good segue because you just mentioned March Madness and the setup you have. You had the opportunity to not only be there for the national championship for Virginia, you were also there for the UMBC 16-1 upset. That year, I mean, 12-month calendar time, to go from the lows of lows to the highs of highs, I'd love to hear from you what you thought that experience was like for the student body, even for you guys that weren't necessarily a student there. You are in the faculty at that point. How crazy was that environment? Yeah, um... Well, and so, so the fun thing leading into that too is, you know, two of my years at Wisconsin, we went to the final four in the national championship and those guys, you know, were the guys that were my class. And so, you know, I'll never forget welcome week first year and hanging out with Frank Kaminsky at the basement of some frat house. Well, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were freshmen and, but Frank was literally ducking because the, the ceiling, you know, on the floor was, it was too, it was too short, but, uh, you know, so those guys, you know, great dudes, great individuals, whether it was. Sam Decker, Frank Kaminsky, Josh Gosser, you know, Trayvon Jackson, you know, all those guys, you know, just wonderful people first. And I mean, I mean, Nigel Hayes used to try to stump the stenographer. So, you know, that was like our fun March Madness experience when I was a student athlete. And so then to get to Virginia that obviously has an amazing basketball history, basketball tradition, Ralph Sampson, and then to get, you know, when I was there, we actually played Wisconsin my, my first year as a GA here. And so I went. And I had to sit in the employee seats that we get for tickets for basketball games. But I was cheering for Bucky. You know, I'm like, hey, it's my blood. Like, these are my, I still know guys on the team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that point, I didn't really know any of the basketball guys because I'd only been here for a, f a few months. But over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of the guys on the basketball staff, a lot of Wisconsin connections. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys are our academic advisor for basketball. He actually just got a job at George Mason um, on their staff. But so TJ Hughes from uh, Sheboygan. Uh, our SID, so our sports information director, Eric Bacher, he's from Stevens Point. So we got guys all over the place. Kirk Penny actually is on the staff here now too. Kirk Penny was a longtime star at Wisconsin. He actually married, his wife is a, a volleyball player from Wisconsin who actually went to Arrowhead. She went to, you know, from our hometown. So there are a lot of connections. 
here at Virginia from Wisconsin. So it's really neat. I actually just met a, a volleyball coach yesterday that she came from, from North Dakota State, but grew up in Wisconsin too, in, in Stevens Point. And, and so there are a lot of great people here in our offices. And, and so getting to know those guys, you know, being so excited for their run and then seeing it cut short, you know, by UMBC and, and kudos to them. They had a heck of a game. They made their threes. And, you know, that was a, it was a tough loss for everyone. I mean, I felt worse for the guys I knew, for the program, the players, but for all the fans that everyone was freaking out and, and so upset here and because they've had some heartbreaking years here at Virginia, whether it was the Michigan State losses, you know, they had some rough tournaments leading up to that. And so we finally felt, hey, this is the year, this is the team. I mean, and that team was phenomenal. I really good players because that was the 18 year, I want to say. And then, but at the same time, having lived through losing to Kentucky on a missed shot, you know, Trayvon missed a shot at the buzzer off the glass in the final four. So then beating Kentucky the next year, losing to Duke, Justice Winslow definitely touched that ball before it went out of bounds. Um, had to throw that in there. But so then losing the championship game, like I was telling everyone that I was with, I'm like, yo, trust me, I would rather lose the first round than to lose in the championship game. And they're like, no, 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 no. I'm like, trust me, you get so invested, you're so bought in, you want it so bad for the guys, for the people in the program, that then to lose in the championship game, and it's so much harder now the historical context of being the only number one to ever lose to a 16. Yes. You don't want to be in that, in that class, in that category. But as coach Bennett says, if you can take that experience and use it to propel you and take you places you've never been before. I mean, just what a story. I mean, we all were laughing. We're like, this is going to be a 30 for 30 and you know, in a couple of years and, and they're going to write books and make movies about this. And, and that team, you know, from the Purdue game, I mean, the, the tip out, to Kihei passing up to Mamani to hit the buzzer beater to get into overtime. So then Kyle Guy getting fouled on the three-pointer, down two against Auburn uh, to win that game, to then getting into overtime in the championship game against Texas Tech. You know, DeAndre Hunter hit a big three to help us get into that overtime. And, I mean, just that run and watching the way it played out reminded me so much of my time as a student athlete at Wisconsin and those final four runs. And, you know, you just have some of those magical moments every tournament. And it takes luck. It takes luck to win. But the best thing about the tournament, in my opinion, is you got to remember, you only got to win five games. You're not playing the 64 or 68 teams in the field. You're playing five teams. And you can't play them all at once. You're only playing one team at a time, and there's only going to be five of them. So don't make it out to be this huge tournament. Don't make it out to be – make it out to be one game at a time for five games. It's three weekends, you know. And so that's all it takes. And it's – it's one of those where I think it's really, really special. I mean, obviously, it's just such a cool tournament, such a cool atmosphere. I mean, I think it takes six to win, but five to get to the championship. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, that story, those guys, what they battled through. I mean, and that's where the Gardner-Webb game in the first round. I don't know if you guys remember that game. The year that we won, we were losing, like, big. We were down, like, 15 early on. I think it was, like, 29 to 14. Gardner-Webb was winning, and everyone goes, oh, my gosh, is this going to happen again? And I think there was that aspect of the guys realizing, like, we, we, like we got to step up and we got to turn this around and they had to get over some courage and some fear of getting back in that arena. You know, the poem, the man in the arena. I mean, it just, it takes courage to get out there, especially after a failure like the year before. And it kind of set the story straight, but obviously, you know, they, they went on to win the championship and just such a cool moment. And just so happy for all those guys and that program, you know, across the street from us, the basketball, they do things the right way. Coach Bennett, he's an amazing coach and just in a time where integrity matters and character matters, uh, you're just so happy for, for that program and those players and, and that staff. Well, and Coach, you just said it. I mean, he's one of the good guys in sports, not only basketball. So it was really good to see 
That was such a the fact that he handled it with Grace losing to UMBC the way he did, I think speaks a lot to his character and the character of that team. And not only that, I think it's great too that you got to see Auburn roll Toomer's corner well before they actually locked up the game, which was great. So another reason to like Virginia winning that national title. But we're, obviously, we're only going to have a couple more questions left. You, Drew, you've given us a ton of time, so we'll probably ask you two, three questions left and let you go on your way tonight. Again, you don't have a choice. You're going to have to come back. But I do want to get into your football experience now with Virginia. I was just curious, was this a you sought out Virginia and Coach Mendenhall, or did they possibly call it? and contact you. How did this all come to be, you being a Cavalier now? Yeah, so great question. And, it, you know, anytime you're trying to get into the coaching community, it's all about networking and and knowing the right people. And, and that's where my experience at Wisconsin was so valuable to me and playing for three head coaches is I got to know a lot of coaches, got to know a lot of guys, got to learn from a lot of people. And it was one thing that when I was a player, I always tried to make sure never to burn a bridge. And I didn't always agree with everything our coaches said. I didn't agree with every game plan. I didn't agree with everything they asked me to do. But I wanted to make sure that I never burned a bridge because here are guys that might be able to help me one day or at least be a reference or a resource. And so, you know, so I tried to get a coaching job directly out of, out of you know, being a player. So I worked my last spring. Um, I trained for, for pro day and all that at Wisconsin. And then I was working in recruiting, kind of doing a little internship, kind of learning some of the stuff behind the scenes, the software we use you know, kind of just how it, how it functions up there in the offices. And then that spring, I helped out as a student assistant, did all of our charting for special teams and, and other stuff like that. And so got some really good experience, got to know those guys a lot better, and then was trying to find some spots. And so that I actually had an opportunity that, you know, I had a buddy that was really good friends with my, uh, like one of my good high school friends. I don't know if you remember Steve Benna, uh, Wally, but so Steve, his college roommate was uh, one of the managers in Missouri. And so he actually left to become kind of their director of football operations at Missouri State when their old head coach, Coach Steckler, uh, or Coach Steck was out at Missouri State. And so Jake had reached out saying, hey, like we actually got a GA opening, works with special teams, like would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, well, obviously we'd love it. You know, we'd love to be out there with you, continue to learn. He's great staff. He's got great experience. And then they decided at the last minute to go with a defensive GA because they got a guy to volunteer for the, the specialist spot. And so... Um, that kind of fell through last minute. So that's how I ended up back home at Arrowhead. And so coach there, you know, was great to be, I needed to be home at that time in my life. And that's, this is something I don't, you know, we can talk about next time I'm on the podcast or something, but obviously, you know, went through some tragedy there with, with the passing of, of Sam Fultz and, and, you know, Mike Sadler and, and just that whole situation. And so to be home, to be around coaches that I knew, you know, coach Tarasco was still back on staff, helping coach the linebackers who was our old head coach um, that retired after my senior year. Jeff Steinbach, our old former athletic director, Coach Steinbach, he, he's probably the biggest coaching mentor in my life and in my career. Um, and so to have him there, guys like Dave Pfeiffer, who's a longtime head coach, just a huge mentor in my life still today, to have him there, get to learn from those guys and just be supported by those guys, as well as the teachers and the staff at Arrowhead. But so that whole time then, I was still looking for jobs while coaching at Arrowhead. And they all knew. They said, hey, we know this is what you want to do. We'll try to help whatever we can do. You know, as guys come in to recruit, We'll make sure we welcome past your desk. We can introduce you. You know, you can meet these guys too. And so that was really fun because I got to meet guys. Yeah, I remember you know, Coach Salem, who was the quarterback's coach at Michigan State when he came in. You know, Ty Howell, who's at, at Penn State now. He was at uh, Western Illinois when he was recruiting some of our guys. And so I got to meet some of those guys. 
But then it was actually through the kicking world that Jamie Cole, who runs Cole's Kicking, so Jamie and I obviously had stayed in contact. I helped work a lot of Cole's camps and then helped coach while I was, you know, playing at Madison and then still helped run some camps, you know, while I was back home that, that next year. And, and so I was working at camp and he came up to me and said, hey, you sure you want to do this college coaching thing? And I said, yeah, 100%. He said, okay, well, there might be a chance at Virginia. And uh, I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, I'll volunteer. I'll do whatever it takes. And he said, no, it'd be the paid GA position. He's like, but so, yeah, just send me your resume and, and I'll, I'll get your information to them. And then, you know, we'll see what happens from there. And so uh, he texted me one morning. He said, hey, is this is your best phone number to reach you? I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, they might be calling today. Just, just a heads up. And so I was working study hall at Arrowhead and working senior study hall. And I get a phone call from a 434 area code. I'm like, oh my God, this I think this is it. So I, I told all the seniors, I said, yo, don't do anything crazy. Just take care of yourself, guys. I got to go take this phone call. And so I walked into that back hallway kind of by the old, the old uh, swimming swim pool. And I answered it. And he's like, hey, is this Drew? I said, yeah. He said, and he goes, hey, this is you know, Coach Kelly Peping at the University of Virginia. I was like, no way. I said, Coach, thanks for giving me a call. And, and I'm like, and by the way, you don't happen to be related to Brady Papinga, do you? Because you know, his brother, Brady Papinga, played for the Packers. And, uh, you know, being from Wisconsin, the Green Bay Packers are everything. And, and so we all know the roster. And I'm like, you know, that's a pretty uncommon last name. And he goes, yeah, that's, that's my brother. And I was like, no way. And so we get chatting. And we start talking. And he goes, hey, yeah, I like, got, your, got your name from Jamie. And, and, you know, saw your resume. And, you know, just wanted to kind of get to know you and, and, and talk about this experience and kind of what you're looking for. And, and so we start chatting. And, and so he actually – so. Coach Paping was part of the staff that all came from BYU to Virginia with Coach Mendenhall. And so when they were at BYU, they recruited Vince Beagle, who was an outside linebacker, played at Wisconsin with me, who was a former teammate, because um, Vince's dad was the all-time leading tackler in BYU history. And so, so Rocky was a big time out there at BYU. Vince was a, a, you know Army All-American player, one of the top players in the country coming out of high school. And uh, so they recruited Vince really hard. They'd been to this you know, their house for, for an in-home visit, sat in the cranberry bog, you know, did all that. And uh, so they knew Vince really well. And they're like, yeah, so we talked to Vince about you. And, and Vince and I used to be locker buddies too. He was next door to me. And, and so I knew Vince really well. And, and so, you know, through those connections as well, the whole staff that we had my second year with, or my, my third and fourth year with Gary Anderson, you know, Coach Anderson, Coach Aranda, all those guys, you know, they were Utah State guys. And so they used to meet up with the BYU coaches and talk, defense and talk football in the offseason. So there are a lot of connections between either former coaches, former players, former teammates, you know, just it all kind of was blending together saying, hey, like this, yeah, this might work out. And so I sent him some of the stuff we did at Arrowhead and, you know, meetings I'd put together. Um, I had a special teams manual I put together. And so then they flew me out on an interview uh, later that week, was able to interview. It was really intense. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience, though. Tons of fun. Got to meet, you know, the coaches on staff. And, and present in front of them and, and break down film. I mean, they pretty much said, hey, like, we're going to put you through a work day. Like, your interview, like, sit down. We'll have you break down film. Give us a scouting report on our first opponent next year. Let's go over these units. At 3 o'clock, you'll present to us in the staff room. Or it was, like, at 1 o'clock. They picked me up at, like, 7 in the morning or whatever. And they said, okay, go. Here's, here's a laptop. Here's some film. Show us what you know. And then they showed me recruits. They had me evaluate those guys from a technical form, you know, technical side of like kicking and punting and snapping. And so they put spring practice up there and had me go over that. I mean, it was pretty cool, but they were firing off questions and, and coach Mendenhall. I mean, he is one that he does not mess around. Like if you have a point or you say something or you speak up in a meeting, he'll ask you to, to expand on it or, or okay. So, so go deeper on this or tell me what, 
what you mean by that, you know, so you can't sugarcoat anything. You can't give a generic answer. I mean, he's going to get to the root of what you're trying to say. And so, yeah, it was intense. I mean, there was a little sweat going on and, and but it was a, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And then, uh, he actually gave me coach Menahal gave me a, uh, a final homework assignment before I left. And so he said, based on your interview, like, I want to offer you the, the job conditionally. He's like, I'm going to call you tomorrow after our camp. And so it's about 24 hours from now. And he's like, I'm going to you know, give you a call back, but I want you to talk to five people that know me and report back what you learned. And so immediately I called coach Noki Brechterfield, who was the old D line coach of Wisconsin. He's now at Vanderbilt, but coach Noakes played for coach Mendenhall when coach Mendenhall was a GA at Oregon state. And so I called coach Noakes on my way home from the airport after flying into Chicago and coach Noakes called me back like three more times to keep telling me stories about coach Mendenhall and the pursuit drills and him biking to work back and forth. And, and so that was so much fun. And then I, he, you know, and coach Mendenhall had said in his office, he said, Hey, Gary Anderson's a great place to start to. And so that was amazing. Cause then I got to call coach Anderson, uh, track down his phone number, give him a call, talk to him and, and his son, um, Keegan. And, and so to just kind of catch up with those guys and learn about coach. And I talked to another guy, Paul Gustafson, who he co-authored a book called running into the wind with, with coach Mendenhall. And then uh, talked to Coach Aranda as well, which he was down at LSU at this time. And so he called me back, right? You know, I texted him saying, Hey, Coach, is there any chance you have that I could, you know, talk to you about Coach? And, and he left a meeting and called me and said, Hey, what do you need? I got five minutes, you know. And so all these guys really went out on a limb. Coach Bush, too, Bill Bush, you know, long time secondaries coach. He was at Ohio State for a little bit. And Coach Bush actually took over a lease from Coach Menahal after he left Northern Arizona years ago in his coaching ranks. And and so all these crazy connections got to connect with all these guys and continue to learn about coach. And he called me up. He said, okay, let's go. What did you learn? And so I, I told him who, and you know, what we had talked about and what I learned. He said, okay, so why do you think I had you do this? And, and so I was like, well, I think part of it is to see how resourceful I am, how well connected I am. And, and also from a recruiting standpoint, like, can you get the job done and how creative can you be? Like what angles can you take? Who can you talk to? I mean, I, I was so stressed at one point. I was trying to reach somebody at their church at the ward to see if I could get in touch with anyone there. And at that time I didn't really know much about the Mormon faith and the structure in their wards and their churches. And, and so I was like trying to talk to a pastor or something. And I'm like, they don't even have one, but I'm trying to talk to the pastor. Uh, I was trying to talk to, at one point I tried calling the, the feed and seed place that, you know, for, cause coach Menahal owns a couple horses and some chickens and stuff. So I was trying to call that place to see if they knew him, you know? And so, he was just trying to look to see, okay, how resourceful can you be and how hard will you work at something? Or will you just say, hey, okay, they didn't answer the phone. I mean, I called the, the athletic department and the administration at BYU to try to talk to an AD or assistant AD. Um, and so it was a really cool way to kind of challenge me and, and, and see what, what I had and, and kind of one final last assignment. And so then he was, a, you know, after that phone call, I said, okay, well, I want to officially offer you and, you know, would love to, for you to join our staff. And so that you know, moved out a week later, tried to find an apartment and yeah, hit the road and never looked back. That's a great answer. And I think it's actually going to lead into what Hayden's last question is. We're only going to ask you one more each. Again, Drew, we appreciate it. You've given us a ton of time and we're definitely going to have you back on maybe during a bye week during this season for you guys. But Hayden, let's hear your last question for Drew before I ask one and we'll wrap it up for him. Yeah. So I really wish uh, Casey, our other co-host was here to take part in this in this little get together but he had a question that he wanted to specifically ask you and he wanted to know how to get into division one college football as a coach if you 
have very limited connections. I know you talked, you, you just talked about how connections was so, so, so important in doing what you do. So how would someone go about it with not having the connections and the resources that you had? Definitely. Well, well the first thing is without connections in D1, it's okay. So what are you currently doing? Are you currently coaching in high school or are you like a student? You know, cause if you're a student, becoming a student manager is an amazing route to becoming a coach. I mean, there's so many coaches that didn't play football that would surprise you that are high level guys. You know, if you're smart, if you're intelligent, if you can learn quickly, you can coach. I mean, it's one of those where, you know, the game of football is essentially a giant game of chess. And can you learn a scheme? Can you learn techniques? Can you coach techniques? Like coaching is teaching. Can you teach? You know, that's essentially what it comes down to. And so if you're a bright, intelligent person, like you, you can have a shot. If you, if that's what you want to do, if you want to coach, you'll find a home. And so then it's just, okay, how hard are you going to work at building those connections? So if you're currently a high school coach, okay, are you going to the statewide convention every year? You know, that I know in Wisconsin, you know, they, they have a Wisconsin football coaches association convention. And then the coaches from Wisconsin would come in. Are you going to those? Are you meeting guys? Are you talking to them? Are you picking their brain? Are you reaching out in the off season? Are you helping with recruiting to them? You know, are you getting involved in recruiting at a high school to help meet these coaches as they come in and out? You know, if you're, if you're just looking to get into it, analytics too, if you're looking, you know, that's blowing up in college football these days, the analytics side of it. And so can you help out from some statistical standpoint, you know, like whether it's breaking down numbers, whether it's finding trends, whether it's building diagrams, um, there's a young man at UVA that just came up with a system for how much space is created. And like as an offensive lineman, like how much space do you create? And so it's a huge concept that the NFL has really bought into. And this guy's making tons of money now. And he just graduated like two years ago from UVA and everyone's using him because when you're trying to evaluate a player, the best all lineman doesn't necessarily lift the most weight or run the fastest, but can you open up a hole? And so that concept of like how much space you create is becoming this big thing for him. So there's different ways to look at it. Now, if you want to be a straight on the field coach, it's continuing to learn film study, conventions, whatever you can do to get connected. But also like there's an aspect of risk you have to take from a financial standpoint, but going and volunteering. Can you go volunteer somewhere? Can you help out in any capacity? No matter what, I mean, I remember as a GA, like we used to pride ourselves on our job title was really just do whatever needs to be done. That, that was essentially what our job qualification or not qualification, but like our responsibilities was do whatever needs to be done. If I need to go pick up dry cleaning for a coach, do it. We had a coach that was going up to a funeral for a, a young player at a high school, passed away from a school that we heavily recruited. We knew the head coach really well. We knew a bunch of the kids on that team. And so he went up to this funeral to show care for him, but he'd forgotten his dress clothes at his house. So I was FaceTiming him from his house in his closet to make sure I had the right shirt and pants and belt, you know, like little things like that. Picking kids up from swim practice, soccer, yeah, restocking the fridge, restocking the snack bowls, you know, like whatever it is we need to do, you know, run into Kinko's like to go pick up paper in the middle of the day because we're, we're out and we got to make copies, like whatever it may be, you got to be ready to, you know, moving cars, our old D-line coach, you know, I love him to death, but he used to park in the temporary parking lot every day because it was a shorter walk into the building and he tossed us his keys and have us move his car. You know, was it a pain? Of course. But I also earn respect from him by doing that every day. Now, whether he calls a respect or just saying, hey, okay, this guy's going to do my, you know, my low level work. But, you know, there's an aspect of you earn respect from others by doing all the stuff that just needs to be done and needs to be, you know, needs to get done. And I remember I used to sprint up and down the hallways. If I had to go somewhere, I was running. 
because I want people to know, like, I got a sense of urgency and I'll do whatever you need to do. I almost ran over a few of our secretaries, actually. Like, they always, like, we all stick our heads out now and look both ways before walking out into a hallway because they're worried that I was going to be running through. But so finding a way to get involved, whether it's as a volunteer, whether it's finding a GA position, whether whatever it may be. And, and at the same point, like, it's hard to get directly in a D1 immediately. So can you get in at a D3? Can you get in at a D2? Can you get in at an NAIA? FCS, whatever it may be in some capacity, a lot of FCS positions, I know a lot of guys that are at schools where they'll have volunteers on their staff, but then as soon as somebody else moves on, they're getting that job because they've shown and they've proven themselves. And that's the thing about coaching is you have to trust your assistants. You have to trust your guys on staff because if you don't and they let you down, you get fired. As a head coach, if one of your positions doesn't produce and you didn't fully trust that guy, that's your fault, you know? And so that's why it is so much about networking because there's so much faith and trust in who your other coaches are to shape your program. And so if you haven't been around a guy, it's really hard to get hired from on the outside. And that's why this whole connection with me ending up in Virginia was so wild because when I first got hired, I was the only guy really on, besides our, our wide receivers coach had played at Virginia, longtime Virginia coach, Coach Hagens, he's the GOAT. But he really and I were the only two guys on staff that didn't come from BYU or hadn't played at Virginia for Coach Mendenhall. And so... There's so much to understand about being a part of the culture, being a part of what a coach wants in a program, but then also what the expectations are and living up to that and that trust factor. And so getting in to a school, getting in with a good staff, a good coach, whether it's at a volunteer position, because who knows, you might be there for six months as a volunteer before you get promoted. You might be there for two years. So there's no guarantees, but being able to have that flexibility of knowing, hey, this is what I want to do and going all in. You can't. You can't stick your toe in the water if you want to coach. Um, I had a former kicker and teammate of mine that called me one day saying, hey, yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking I might want to get into coaching. I might want to be a GA. And I said, okay, well, why do you think this? And he's like, well, I love the game, but like, I'm not really sure what I want to do for work either. And I said, whoa. I said, if you want to lean back and become a GA because you, you're, you're not sure what you want to do with your career, this is not it. I was like, I just want you to know. I said, if I got my first year as a GA, if I got four hours of sleep in a night during the season, it was a huge win. I celebrated it like most nights. And part of it was because I was still learning all the software and learning everything. And it was my first year on that side. And, and I was doing a lot cause I was coordinating behind all the scenes, all the special teams for our, our four or five different coaches that were coaching the units. You know, I was doing all the behind the scenes work and they all wanted something different, you know, formatting and everything like that. But I mean, so I was sleeping three hours a night, some, some weeks, you know, Tuesday through, through Thursday, Thursday was really the first night that I could get nine hours of sleep. Uh, and that was because we started later on in the day on Friday in the afternoon, we had Friday mornings off, but I mean, Sunday, Monday nights, if I got an hour and a half two two and a half hours, I mean, I, I, that it was just what you did. And so you have to be able to sacrifice and you have to be willing to put in the time to take a risk on yourself and go all in. So I, I hope that answered the question. Well, and I'll ask my last one here, but again, great answer. It's obvious that you're passionate about football and I got to see firsthand luckily the same passion even at the high school level I mean I remember walking in the locker room and I still don't know what you were doing it looked cool but you were practicing doing like your your toe point for the punts standing on the bench in the arrowhead locker rooms and I just remember being like I don't know if this is like a flex where he's just like alphaing us like hey I'm I'm working and I'm just like well shit I, I was getting ready to go home but even so it's no. called the bench drill Whatever you call it, it, I just remember watching. I'm like, this guy right here 
He he's working hard. I don't know what he's, what he's working, working at. at. I still make our guys do it today. I mean, it's one of those things. Like, I don't know what you were doing. Again, you caught the bench draw. I'll have to ask you next time around about that. But I'll get to my last question today. Again, we appreciate you, Drew. This one's a little less, I guess, hardcore than the last couple we've been asking. But I saw, as I follow you on Twitter, you quote tweeted today your schedule release, or at least the times for the first five games. You guys start with four of your first five games. They're night games, including a Friday, followed by a Thursday game. As a player, I guess not, I mean, you're a coach now, obviously, but as a player, were you extra fired up about those night games? Because Alan here, we've been bitching about the Ohio State-Oregon game being a big noon game and Fox Sports making all these Big Ten games at noon when fans, at least younger fans, want that late game. So I guess from you coach perspective, player perspective, what is that like? Because that's four out of five to start. That's a big deal. Yeah, so, so I mean, there's kind of three perspectives. There's player, fan, and TV. So, like, just in the reality of it. So, the big noon kickoff for Fox, it's because they understand that to get the most ratings, you got to get the population. And so, if you have three major primetime games going on, on ESPN, ABC, and Fox, now you've got the entire country split between three audiences. And you got the SEC key game is normally that, like, 3.30, 4.30 game. That's normally their big game on CBS. So, the only other time slot is the early and so I, that's, that's kind of how it worked out. And now the Big Ten are the ones that are suffering because of it, because all their big matchups are these noon games. And those are always the hardest games to play. Hence why, to an extent, our game against Illinois is the early game, which I remember being the Big Ten and you playing these 11 o'clock games, which everyone out here at Virginia is complaining about that one. They're like, oh, it's an 11 o'clock game, you know, because they're, they're used to playing at noon. And it was the greatest thing when I first got out of here. I'm like, oh my gosh, we don't have any 11 o'clock games anymore. It's amazing. But so, yeah, now they're, they're experiencing an 11 o'clock kickoff and everyone's losing their mind out here. But I'm like, this is, this is normal Big Ten life. You know, it's normal Midwest life. Um, but so, it's one of those where the TV, and that's why we have the early game for the Illinois because of TV. They're trying to do games back to back to back to back on the ACC network. And so we're just the early game of that ACC network lineup. And so, yeah, and that's where, you know, we have these four primetime games because of the ACC network, because of all these different, there's just more ways to get on TV these days, which is amazing. Uh, but yeah, no, they are so much fun. And I think they stand out so much because like when you're in high school, like you play like Friday Night Lights, like that's what you hear about all the time is Friday Night Lights. And in college, when you get those opportunities to play under the lights, like there's something special about it. I remember in youth football, like we might get one game in youth football under the lights and it's the biggest deal in the world. And so to get back under the lights, to play at those times of night, you know, you have all day to kind of build up towards it. It's hard as a player though, to, to wait all day to then play, you know, you got to figure out how to, you know, ride the, ride the wave and you don't want to be too excited too early. You really want to be able to just stay flatline all the way until you hit kickoff and then take off and go. But yeah, we're really excited. I mean, we love night games. We played really well at night. So yeah, we're, we're pumped up. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait. And Scott Stadium at night is, is there. There's few more beautiful stadiums at night than Scott Stadium. I mean, obviously, I love Camp Randall. Had an amazing experience there. Our night games at Camp Randall were, were bonkers. But then you know Scott Stadium. There's just such a cool. I mean, the columns that we got, the pillars. You know, the, it, there's just the way the hill is too, with the fans on the hill. I, I mean, when we played Florida State at night a couple of years ago, and we we stopped them on a goal line stand, the fans rushed the field. I mean, 
it's it's really really cool atmosphere at night and we've been really lucky here at uva to get a lot of them and the nice thing is is the weather's so nice it's not freezing <laughs> at night when you play these night games here and so um yeah just really excited really looking forward to that Drew, thank you so much for coming on again you gave us more than enough time but we will have you back so that's kind of a non-negotiable thing here but otherwise again we're going to get you in the Wisconsin Hall of Fame if we have to literally put a plaque up ourselves to just say that Drew Meyer, best punter in Wisconsin history. But otherwise, just know we got the uh, UVA flag flying high on this Big Ten podcast. Otherwise, Hayden, do you have anything to say to Drew other than thank you? No, really, just thank you for, for your time. We know you're a busy guy, so, so thanks for coming on and, and spending some time with us. No, thank you guys. I mean, this is a blast. Uh, obviously, Wally, like we had a great friendship growing up. And I just always remember you guys going so hard at practice and giving everything you got. And you weren't always the most athletic, but shoot, you were going to freaking get after it. And so, and that's not a dig. I mean, we're not all, I mean, shoot, again, I'm not, I'm not a big 10 linebacker. Like I wasn't built that way, you know, and, and uh, but you know, we had a lot of fun back in the day. And, and tonight obviously was a blast for me too. I was I know I told you guys I could go all night. I literally could go all night if we needed to, but I appreciate you guys letting me go out, out here on East Coast time. And, and uh, yeah, no, let's do this again soon. I mean, we don't even have to wait six months if you don't want. So uh, just just let me know the next time you want to have me on, and I'll, I'll be here. Well, and I will say this. I was going to ask you who the most talented athlete you ever played with was. So you get to dodge a bullet because it, it was Chris Borland. Chris Borland. Oh, yeah. I was going to say it was me. So, so, sorry, Wally, but. Chris Borland was like nobody I've ever seen in my life. That guy, final wrap-up, Chris Borland. I mean, he, he tied the record for most forced fumbles in a college career in NCAA history. The guy, if you gave him two weeks at any position, he would have started except for quarterback because his shoulders from surgeries. He would have taken my job as a punter. He was our third-string punter. And so, like, legitimately was our third-string punter. He was an All-State soccer player back in, uh, in Kettering, Ohio. So, yeah, Chris, hands down, I, I mean – I, I respect his decision to walk away from the game so much. Chris is one of the smarter players I ever played with, too. He was a history major. I mean, just a wonderful person and did his research. I mean, he knew what he was doing when he walked away from the game, especially for his situation. I mean, every player is different. But with his past, I mean, he, you know, he has all the right to make that decision. But I felt so bad from a fan perspective because he would have been in the Hall of Fame in the NFL. He was that type of a player. He was that type of a linebacker. I mean, he went out and he, I think he had 20 tackles a couple times in the NFL as a rookie. I, I think he finished second on their team in tackles, and he only started like nine, seven or nine games for San Francisco. So, yeah, hands down. I've seen him drop kick a football right-footed from 40 yards and then do it again left-footed. Like, I, like he did it from right-footed, and then he asked me to borrow my ball. I tossed it to him, and then he did it left-footed. I mean, the guy was an animal, free cows. Well, I mean, I guess after myself and Derek Landish, Chris Borland was a great third pick. Again, but for the record, you were the first person, even before Derek, and I worshipped him in school, you were the first person I, I decided to message for this because I just felt like you'd be the perfect guest for this. So, again, we have to thank you, and Casey wanted to be here. But, Drew, you're welcome back anytime. You don't even have to get an invite. You text us and say, I'm coming on the show. You're on the show. If you guys need another guest host, if Casey can't make it again, let me know. Of course, anytime. But, hey, Drew, again, thanks so much. Again, this is not the last time you hear from him, so – Get used to Drew Meyer, everybody. But good luck. Uh, we know that you have bright things coming for you, bud. Uh, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on, Hayden and Wally.
Thanks again to Drew Meyer for doing that interview. Remember, we're recording this before it actually happened, so we're just going to assume it was one of the best interviews ever conducted, and now you guys are giant Drew Meyer fans as we are. But anyways, I guess since we don't have much to say about it yet because we haven't done it, we'll wait until next week to hear what you guys' thoughts are on the interview because we really don't have the thoughts yet. But otherwise, we're going to go back to the Ask CHW segment that we posed last week. Again, if you want to have us answer a question, it doesn't have to be about the Big Ten. It could be about anything. It could be, Hayden, what's your favorite color? Wally, tell me an embarrassing story. Casey, what are your hopes and dreams? It doesn't matter. If you want to ask any of us a question, or even tell us anything, tweet at us our PNNPod Twitter account, or just do hashtag AskCHW. That's AskCHW. That's C is in Casey, H is in Hayden, W is in Wally. Our first question came in this last week from a buddy of all three of ours here, Alex Pessel, Northwest Ohio guy. We're all big fans of this guy. He's Honestly, he's a hero. We all love this kid. He asked us, best Big Ten basketball team of all time and why? Hayden, again, because I'm actually going to focus now. I'm going to turn my mic off and let you talk. We're going to go and let you tell us a little bit here about what you think the greatest basketball team in the conference history is and why you think that. Alex, thank you for giving us the question, but I think this one was kind of a freebie because I don't think there's any other answer than the undefeated Indiana team in 1975, and I didn't even waste my time to pull up any stats other than their record because they were 32-0 and and they won a national title. So thanks for the question, but I really I don't think there's any other option. It has to be the Indiana team. Now, for conversation's sake, I have some honorable mentions. I didn't put them up here, but they're already listed, and I'll let you guys talk about them. 0405 Illinois was my second choice, and they didn't win a title, but I'll let you guys go into depth because I already said my piece, but it has to be the undefeated team of Indiana. All right, so I'm going to do mine first before I throw it to Casey. So I actually think it's a lot more of a conversation than you said so, Hayden, because Indiana, yeah, 32-0. It's hard to argue an undefeated season like that, but if you also factor in not only how great these teams were, but how influential not only to the Big Ten, not only to their program, but to college basketball as a whole they were, I think there's a case to be made for either the, I'm going to start with the one I think is less likely because they didn't, for their sake, regrettably, win a national title, but those two years with the Fab Five, Mm -hmm. they changed college basketball, not only from the aesthetics aspect, but the way we recruit, we're still seeing a lot of the effects of it today with the quote-unquote one-and-dones and what we saw Duke and Kentucky and North Carolina dominate here for the last 15 years with the Zions, with the Anthony Davises, stuff like that, where without maybe that Fab Five team, do we see it as quickly? I don't know. I think it's a lot closer with the other team that did win a national title on this list. You mentioned the Illinois team, and I think they're worthy of an honorable mention, but to me, they're not top three. It would go Fab Five, and then one, two would be between that Indiana team you mentioned, and of course, the Magic Johnson, Michigan State Spartans of 78-79. People don't seem to talk about it nearly as much, because we all know, or we've heard the rumors, or not rumors, we've heard the stories, we've heard the legends of Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Even pre-NBA days, these guys were rivals at the collegiate level, because I believe Larry Bird was Indiana State, and they met in the national title game. Highly touted matchup. Here's the kicker for you, though. Not only did Michigan State win that tournament, they didn't win a game by single digits. 
They were winning every single game. Kind of like what we were talking about going into the final weekend of what Gonzaga was doing this year, except they finished the job. And they did it against guys that we can even look back on. Larry Bird, again, you heard of him? He's all right. So, I mean, this was, to me, purely on what Magic did, not only to that program, but for the game of basketball. We didn't see ones have that size before he came around. That athleticism, and he he literally changed the game of basketball. So for me, I think it's a lot closer there. I would, just to be a thorn in your side, Hayden, and try to give a little bit of love and mix it up a little bit, I'm going to say that Michigan State 78-79 team was actually the best uh, Big Ten basketball team of all time. So, Casey. You're an asshole. Yeah, I am, Hayden. Get used to it. Casey, what do you think? Do you have, I guess, a vote to break the tie here, or are you going completely off the board? Yeah, no, I'm going to have to go with Hayden here. I think, you know, the... Oh! Are they the only undefeated team of all time? Or or is it just there hasn't been one since 1975? I don't know. I think there's been other teams, but it's been like... That was quote-unquote modern basketball. Yeah. And I don't think there was before that. Yeah, so you got to go with the 1975 Indiana squad finishing 32-0. I'll give you a fun fact real quick. Yeah. This doesn't have to go with any Big Ten, really, but Indiana was the last undefeated basketball team to win a title. UCLA did it four times. 63-64, So they got two back-to-back and then two earlier in the 60s. North Carolina did it in the 50s, and San Francisco College did it in the 50s as well. So those are the only... Technically, there's only four schools that have ever been undefeated national champion. It just so happens that UCLA has four of them at 30-0 and all four seasons. Is that good? Is that good? Is that good? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, but Wally, I agree with the 04-05 Illinois team. I think they were really good. really good. They would have an argument if they had won a national championship, but obviously they didn't. You know, with D. Brown, Darren Williams... And uh, you remember Luther Head? For some reason, I loved the number four back in my day. Luther Head wore number four, and I, I liked him a lot. I tell you what, too. If they had won a national title and their only loss was that Matt Sylvester three oh, man. midseason at Ohio State, <laughs> you best believe I'd be saying they're the best what, basketball Weren't they like 29-0 or something? It was point? ridiculous. Hey, and you might remember, it was late in the season when that happened. Yeah, yeah it was It was literally like the beginning of March, I think. Like the very end of the season. It might have been the last regular season game. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, go ahead, Casey. That's that's my bad to yeah. segue that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I got to give some love to the Fab Five too. Not only were they a really good basketball team, you know, they did, they really did change the game. And then I'm also going to give some love to the '99 2000 Michigan State team, just because that's the last Big Ten team to win a national title, which is unreal because we've had so many good teams since 2000. They did have five top eight wins that year in the regular season and then obviously closed it out in the tournament. I think they were like 20, maybe 30 and seven or something that year. But yeah, I got to give some love to them. But I'm going to have to ultimately go with you, Hayden. No, I understand. It's not exactly, this wasn't me going all out there. It was just like, let me play a little devil's advocate. I think there's a case to be made, at least because that team with Magic started the year poorly. Who knows, by the end of that year, I mean, we're only talking four years apart, so it's not like a different game of basketball. Yeah. 
if you put that 75 versus 78 team, I think it'd be really close. It'd be a great game, but that's a good first question there. Thank you, Alex, for that. Now let's go to our second one today, and final one, I should say, from Justin Stoner. Hayden and Casey's buddy here, he also had a question about Big Ten basketball. He asked, what Big Ten basketball player in the last 10 years deserves more recognition? This time we're going to switch it around. We're going to come back. So Casey, we're going to go to you first. Casey, do you have a player that I guess in the last 10 years you believe deserves more recognition? This is a really good question too, because you can take this about any direction. I think you could be talking about you can talk about the best player in the Big Ten in the last 10 years and argue that. You could also be arguing for an eighth guy off the bench. So this is a really good question. We definitely appreciate it, Justin. Let's go to you first, Casey. Yeah, so the two guys that really popped into my mind when I saw this question, and, they, you know, they were, I guess they were stars, but I think they are very underappreciated, and that is uh, Cody Zeller and Caleb Swanigan. Ooh. Uh, two two big boys. Swanigan played at Purdue. Zeller played at Indiana. And I just remember dreading having to play Indiana and Purdue because they were so tough. Now, I mean, Zeller gets kind of overshadowed because they had Oladipo for one of those years. And then Swanigan, gosh, I forget who the heck that guy was for Purdue. Was that when the do, – do you know, Hayden? I don't know, but I do – I saw a picture of Swanigan the other day on Twitter, and it's kind of interesting that you brought him up. He is a very large human now, and he is obviously going through some mental health issues. So it's kind of interesting that you brought him up just because I saw him, but hopefully he gets better because he did not look like he was in good shape. Oh, uh, yeah, so obviously we hope that he uh, he gets better. Thanks for that, Hayden. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, that, that's what stood out to me, I guess. I feel like the Big Ten always has sharpshooters and, and really good guards for the most part. So the the big guys stood out to me as guys that I felt were really good, but also kind of overshadowed by their really their team and their team success. And two guys that really didn't make it in the NBA. I know, obviously, Swanigan's going through some stuff, but uh, Zeller, I guess, has had a... A decent NBA career, but obviously not. He's another one of those guys that if he came in maybe 10 years earlier, he could have carved out a little bit more of a role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it is what it is. I'm going to real quick, since I have the mic on me, I'll go real quick and I'll throw it to Hayden last. For me, I'm going to go another approach where we talk about how the Big Ten, it feels like they are always right there in college basketball winning another national title, and they just so happen to fall just short. This is another example. Sam Decker for me. Mm. I feel like a lot of people go or talk about Frank Kaminsky, and for whatever reason, Sam Decker always seemed to get lost in the shuffle. Decker was, he's almost too big to be called a pest, but he was a pest. Yeah. Like you just, another school in that era, you just couldn't stand going up there to the Cole Center and playing Wisconsin because not only did you have Kaminsky, not only did you have whatever that uh, redhead guy with the fro that was there for 114 seasons, like Berkowitz or something oh, like that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You guys know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but you had those guys. And then you had Sam Decker, who was another guy that was a borderline star in college basketball. Yeah. And, I mean, he obviously, again, had it been a different era, maybe he carves out a better pro career here in the United States. I think he's over in Turkey playing now. That's neither here nor there. He was a part of that Wisconsin resurgence, not only in football. That was one of their best areas for football ever, too. But for basketball, if it wasn't for... 
an unfortunate couple-minute stretch by Duke, Wisconsin wins a national title, and I don't think anybody in the country saw that coming. I was mortified, too, because I still had all my buddies in Wisconsin texting me and giving me a hard time, so I was rooting (laughs) passionately against them. Now that we're a few years removed, I kind of regret that, because that would have been really cool for the Big Ten. But yeah, for me, I felt like Sam Decker's a guy that, for whatever reason, just sometimes he gets left out of those conversations on those Badger teams. It always goes back to Kaminsky. So for me, he was my guy, clearly. Now, Hayden, let's hear from you. Do you have a guy that stood out to you over the last 10 years you feel that deserves a little bit more respect? Yeah, and kind of along with Casey, I thought of this guy instantly, always because I hated playing against this guy or having my team play against this guy because he was such a sharp shooter. Duncan Robinson, I think, doesn't isn't appreciated as much as what he should be. And maybe I'm kind of caught up in a little bit of recency bias because of how he is performing. And I didn't think he – I mean, yeah, he could shoot. I didn't know he would be – he's pretty good. I mean, he's averaging – 13 points a game this year, uh, this year in the NBA, and he's shooting 40% from three. So I, I maybe I'm basing that more off his NBA career, but I, I, I think he deserves a little bit more recognition from his time in college as well. No, I completely agree, Hayden. He was uh, Michigan, Michigan in the past really five to six years, I feel like, have just been like any guy can go off. And they have guys that average 10, 11, 12, 13 points a game, like three or four guys that average that. And he just really fit in really well. But as far as his pro career, I think I was reading an article or watching a video or something that said he's going to make a $100 million. Like someone's going to give him a five-year, $100 million contract, which is kind of crazy because, you know, he started out at D3, some D3 school, and then went to Michigan and just, you know, really found a spot and practiced a lot I feel like I mean shoot you don't shoot that well without you know putting up a ton of shots but yeah that was a good player Hayden I will say this real quick too before Hayden comes back in and says anything Duncan Robinson only sad fact for him which again it's a mark how good of a player he is he gets in this situation it just sucks that he was on the wrong end you mentioned D3 you mentioned D1 you mentioned NBA he's lost a championship in each of those levels. Mm-hmm. So it'd be really cool at some point to see him get over that hump. And he's the kind of player that he's, you hate to play against him, but he's when, when he's on your team, he's a dream kind of guy. Not only for chemistry, you know that you're going to get a hundred percent effort on both ends of the floor. And there's not a lot of guys. I feel like you can say that about yeah. where not to say people don't try, but it's a, a we talk about load management in the NBA. It's hard to play 82 games hundred percent all the time. And I guess the benefit for him is he's not playing 35 to 38 minutes all the time. Mm-hmm. So, but still he's a great player to put on this list And you're right. He's going to carve out a good NBA career. Yeah. But anyways, do either of you have anything else you want to say before we wrap it up today? Yeah. Duncan needs to go to the Lakers. Duncan go to the Lakers. Yeah. Aiden, what do you got? Yeah, I agree. Casey he does need to go to the Lakers. Also, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, he played in the national championship game. And I don't think he scored a point, which is really heartbreaking because they could have – and I'm not saying it's his fault at all, but I, I just think the circumstances happened. I don't think he scored, which is really, really unfortunate. Yeah, it would be cool if he scored 25 points and they only would have lost by 20 to that Villanova team because Villanova was literally a cheat code that year. 
It was they, nobody was beating Villanova that night mm. when they played the champion. Was it Galepski or whatever it was? Uh, Jalen Brunson. Yeah, I was gonna say they Eric literally Pascal. went off. It was like yeah. they were like eleven of eighteen from three or something like that. Oh you're just like look up, like, what's going on? Divincenzo. Divincenzo. That was it. Yeah. 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 Vinny, right? It was something like that. Vinny yeah, Divincenzo. Some, something or, like that. He plays for the Bucks now. Yeah. He just was literally unconscious, mm-hmm. and it did not matter what college basketball team on earth. Came out oh, that night. Oh, Best yeah. half you could have played. It was over. Villanova was not losing that national title that year. But yeah, again, thank you very much, Justin. That was a great question. You guys have questions for us. Again, it doesn't have to be just Big Ten. It could be about whatever you want it to be. You could ask us what we think stars are made of. We won't get it right. But you ask us whatever you want. We'll answer questions for you. But otherwise, before we wrap it up, do you guys have any final thoughts for us tonight? I guess, again... Benefit of him being sitting next to me and I have the mic on. Casey, do you have any final thoughts real quick? Not really. Uh, I'm really happy that the Lakers won last night. My Mets my Mets won yesterday. Game got canceled tonight. No, other than that. Yeah, I actually I do have one, and this is going to be news to Casey. The guy that I coach baseball with, Coach Udo, is stepping down at Arcadia. He's been doing it for about, I think, 12 years. And I played, Casey and I both played, you played baseball four years, I think. We both played for him for four years, and now I've coached with him for three. So we have a really good relationship. I really I really like him as a person. So it's going to be interesting to see the way that Arcadia Baseball moves forward. You? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not doing it. But he he told the kids today that he was he was stepping down, so... He he really, I mean, that was the first sport that I coached was baseball, and he gave me the opportunity to do that. So I'm thankful for him and thankful for what he's done for Arcadia Baseball. Well, good luck to coach to you guys uh, as he goes into his retirement. Otherwise, that's going to bring us to the end of another episode of Pigskins and Nylon. We'll be back next week on June 4th. We'll have another edition of our Big Ten's Big Five. Remember, we're going to be ending each show with answering a couple questions each week that you have for us. So again, send us those tweets at hashtag AskCHW. And then while you're at it, give us a follow on social media, whether that be Twitter at PNNPod, Facebook at PNNPod, and Instagram also at PNNPod. Boys, that's the end of another episode of Pigskins and Nylon. Catch us back next time for episode 7.